Once Upon a Time. Welcome to Australian Book Lovers, your destination for imagination. Hello and a big warm welcome to everyone and a huge thank you for joining us for the Australian Book Lovers podcast. Our mission is to bring fabulous Australian and Indigenous literature that spans a whole range of genres to book lovers around the globe, as well as fantastic resources and information for passionate authors looking to write their next bestseller. I'm Veronica Strachan, aka V.E. Patton, fantasy, memoir and picture book writer, voracious reader and one of your co-founders and hosts for the podcast today and coming to you from Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung country in Victoria. And I am Darren Kazanko, dystopian science fiction author and horror author, reader, co-founder and one of your other hosts today for the Australian Book Lovers podcast coming today from Corner Country on a very, very exciting episode because we're, we're still carrying over. It's part two of what was just a jam-packed, awesome uh, experience putting together so many just amazing readings. It was awesome fun. Yes, and I shouldn't be amazed, but I am constantly in awe of the generosity of our Australian authors. So not only do they, uh, you know, give us their books to list and put them on the side, they chat to us at interviews, they, you know, promote all their other colleagues as well. But when the call went out to say, hey, would you like to read a little bit of your story so that we can share that with the Australia Reads campaign, which is about more books more often, and it's a not-for-profit and it's trying to get, you know, more books in the hands of readers and get people off their screens. We just were overwhelmed by the number of people that jumped in. So we've already had two hours and about 16 or 17 authors. And we've got another 16 or 17 authors for our second session. Yeah, another ginormous, uh, excellent adventure ahead. And look, you know, the last six weeks for me have been pretty overwhelming and, um, you know, energy and thoughts and that have had to be strained across a whole range of different areas. So, you know, putting together that podcast and then uh, just listening through and, wow, just realising all these beautifully unique voices and and hearing them one after the other and and every tale as unique as the voice itself and and, and it, it was a shot of inspiration, you know, injection straight in the vein. It was such a wonderful thing. And just once again, a huge thank you to all those authors that were a part of. And I'm, I suspect, well, I know for a fact, at least for a couple, we're going to hear from uh, some authors that were already on the first one as well. With yes. some brand new tales, which is... Uh, awesome as well but yeah what a yeah what what just a beautiful gift from all from all of our authors and and a gift to all wonderful lovely readers out there who, who love their love reading and and if you haven't got time to read or maybe you've, you've discovered the art or the love of audiobooks um, mm. then i'm mm. sure that i'm hoping you're all over these episodes because uh, yes. this is just fantastic yeah, and it, that it inspires you to pick up one of the books that you hear a little snippet from. So you'll find there are kind of anywhere from, you know, three or four minutes to 10, 15 minute uh, snippets from people's books. And we've got dystopian sci-fi, historical fiction, dark fantasy, biography, um, horror, of course, we've got horror. <laughs> we've yes, got yes, Darren. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we've got fantasy, memoir, lots of different things in this book set of readings 
Um, we don't have any middle grade in this, so we did have a, a lovely middle grade fantasy from Claire Roden in the first one. So that was fantastic. And we really are looking to do what Australia Read says, which is establish those creative connections, drive that common passion for reading. And look, it's a rare author that doesn't like reading, whether it's non-fiction or fiction, but you'll find that they are generally in love with words and, and storytelling. So I am really looking forward to this next couple of hours, I suspect, because I went for my walk this morning and I thought, I'll have to go around again because I wasn't at the end <laughs> of the podcast. But anyway, um, there'll be plenty there and I can go back over and over. That's the beauty of us being on so many different platforms. You can just plug in and listen to snippets whenever you want. Yeah, doing the dishes, we can be yes, there. <laughs> Painting walls, we can be there. Pulling yes. weeds, we're under there. <laughs> but you know, one thing I've discovered that's magical about audiobooks as a uh, well, as a writer and someone who uh, is often knee deep in editing is with audiobooks, there is none of those dreaded commas. That's that's, yeah. that's one bonus. <laughs> but uh, but I but I know we we were talking before you know the the show the the previous show uh, yeah. just talking about Osreys in general and the preparation for this and uh, we're talking about how old the, the art of storytelling is really mm, and mm. you know the, the audio format sort of brings it back around to cl- close to its original format uh, I suspect it was probably verbal before or maybe it was written but either way it, it goes back in a long way in time and the idea of sitting around a campfire or a fire somewhere under the stars uh, telling telling these tales um, just seemed to be uh, just a, it was just a like, really stunning image in my mind mm. so hence our little uh, fire that you can sit around audio-wise that you hear in between each tale and yes. with a little bit of wind blowing in the background. And so it's, uh, from the darkness to the campfire, with each uh, at the end, as one author finishes, another one will emerge from the shadows and bring a whole new uh, spark of imagination. But so, so many great tales ahead, so much content. So I just hope everybody, thank you for joining for part two. And I really hope you love it just as much as you love the first one. So without further ado, shall we uh, let the listeners jump into the journey, Veronica? Absolutely. Here we go. All right. Take care, everybody, and uh, stay close to that audio storytelling fire. Hi. Please enjoy this short reading of my debut novel, Lament. I'm jolted one way than the next. My back lays upon something hard with not the slightest give in it, unrelenting against flesh. It's uncomfortable, but I feel no pain. What's pain anyway? No, everything will always be this. What I feel is not enough. It isn't the jolting that's the worst. It's the sound that drones on and on around my head. I can't tell if the constant noise is within or a source outside my own broken mind, coming from somewhere and pulling my mind to something that I can't quite reach out and grasp. Not yet. All I can remember is that I am me. I am Ned. Part 1. The Crash. Saturday. I bang heavily on the door three times and wait. The moon is distant in a dark blanket overhead, signalling the hour, early hours of the morning. The mare stands off to the side, reins dangling beneath her head, waiting patiently with Steve. She's a big bay girl with a sure foot and gentle nature. The perfect companion for tonight a lucky pick for me that I've borrowed from a property the other side of Wangaratta. I knock again. The door is flimsy and could easily be pushed in, but that isn't the motive. I hear movement within and give two more sturdy bangs on the door, impatient, 
I need her to get a move on. There are things to be done. An answering voice muffled within the walls of the inn signals that she's heard and is on her way. About bleeding time, I growled to myself. It's the first time my face has been seen in Glenrowan town in many months. I won't be expected. The door swings open and it takes her a few seconds to size up who's standing in her doorway. Jesus, Ned, you scared the life out of me. I thought it were the coppers again. Annie Jones, how the hell are you? Annie Jones looks relieved, an irony considering who I am and where I stand. The proprietor of the Glenrowan Inn looks the worst for wear since I last laid eyes upon her. The death of her daughter the year before shows in every line on her face and the hard set of her mouth. I wouldn't call her a trusted ally. She's tried to keep everyone on side, the coppers included, and it means that she walks a tightrope. She's friendly with the Hart family, though, and knows my ma and the kids. Right now, I have to take a gamble on even the slimmest of friendships. The Glenrowan Inn, which she opened only 18 months ago, lies across the railway tracks from McDonald's Railway Tavern, the main watering hole of the men who support us, our sympathisers. The tavern is where I'd normally show myself, but not tonight. The Joneses Inn is a neat little building of whitewashed weatherboard and a corrugated iron roof, with bark slab kitchen sitting behind it. The veranda in front is made for standing under, catching up over an ale. It looks a damn good place to sit and watch for coming trains. If I look out towards the station from where I stand, there's a huddle of pitched tents amongst the sapling gums, housing for the railway labourers who work these tracks. The Joneses Inn isn't the obvious place for us to hole up with a pile of hostages while we wait for the police train, but it's his unpredictability that makes it the right call. Though she hasn't even laid eyes on me for many months, Anne's smile is quick after her initial shock. Her face breaks into a wide grin and her body relaxes. I'm not even in my decent Ned. She turns to call into the blackness behind her. Jane, get yourself dressed and come down here. Hurry up, girl. You don't know who you're keeping waiting. I ask how things have been and about the coppers' visits. She tells me what I already know. They turn up on the doorstep regularly, despite the gang not having shown our faces in the area for months. Mostly, they hassle the Irish across at McDonald's. Like me, many of the men on the land might be born or raised here, but there's Tipperary Green running through their veins. The coppers know who's in our corner and they barge in, questioning and pushing them around. Anne's clientele, despite her own Irish roots, are generally acquired a lot, townsfolk and railway workers. The men in the tavern have been no more knowledge of our whereabouts than the coppers themselves these past months. But it hasn't stopped them from being thrown into prisons under the guise of the law. We take care of our own, though. No loyal man's family goes hungry when he's shut away. My name is Annette Janik and I'm the author of War Child. The story actually starts with this question. What would you do if you found yourself caught up in another war? I asked my mother Lenny when I was about 12 years old. Commit suicide, she replied, without batting an eyelid. Her response was so immediate that I can still remember how much it shocked me. She did not hesitate, not even for a second. I knew she had come to Australia with very little education, having endured years of poverty and mistreatment, and that she had always felt, as she put it, like everyone's punching bag. By the time I'd turned 12, I had spent countless hours listening to her stories about growing up in Nazi Germany, and I thought I knew everything there was to know. 
Although hers was a very sad upbringing, I was not sure that it warranted suicide. Lenny was 24 years old when she arrived in Australia on the American troop ship, the General Hahn. And as she faced the prospect of a new beginning, there was little that daunted her. She was used to beginning again and had never been afflicted with the attachment to possessions. What Lenny could not have foreseen as the General Hahn came to a slow grinding halt was that Australia would become her lifelong home. She would live the rest of her life in a new suburb which sprang from the dusty sheep paddocks and slaughter yards in Adelaide's west. Lenny had possessed an inner strength that remained closeted from the outside world. This strength had allowed her to cope with the adversity of, of which she had known for most of her life. She had survived a harsh childhood characterised by poverty and cruelty and the trauma of a world war, but somehow she managed to bury the mental debris associated with both, or so it appeared. As I grew older and acquired an adult perspective, I realised that the stories that Lenny wove, while factually accurate, concealed almost as much as they revealed. Like most children, I thought I knew my mother well, but to use the slang of the day, I didn't know the half of it. It was only in the last few years of her life that I came to know more of what Lenny had endured, what she had merely hinted at in years gone by. She had been living with secret demons that would not leave her alone and it had taken 67 years for her to find the courage to speak of her private agony. She was a victim of sexual abuse. I found myself engulfed by her sorrow because I could do nothing to help her. And I began to understand her immediate reaction to my youthful question over what she would do if there was another war. I began to appreciate that suicide had been an oft-contemplated option for Lenny. It was not so much the war itself that she could never face again. It was what her employer had done to her during that conflict that she could not possibly live through a second time. It has taken me years of careful research and persistent questioning to write this story. The more I delved, the more complex it became, forcing me to contemplate serious issues such as poverty, abuse, religion, migration, survival and the lasting effects of war. These are issues that are relevant today as they were over a hundred years ago when this narrative begins. And on a more spiritual level, other elements began to surface that prompted my exploration of dreams, coincidences, intuition, secrets and searches. Lenny's greatest secret would only emerge after her death. She was one of many European refugees who arrived in Australia as migrants under the auspices of the International Refugee Organisation Programme and who contributed enormously to the development of this nation. She herself was not extraordinary, not a celebrity, movie star, sports star or politician. She was an ordinary person, but with an extraordinary story. With the passing of time, the experiences one shared by many have become the experiences of the few. And with fewer and fewer post-war migrants remaining to tell their stories, there is a risk that their sacrifices will be forgotten confined to the pages of dusty history books or, worse still, never known. Our history matters. It shapes our past, present and future and to lose that history is to lose something truly special. 
War Child is the story of Lenny's part in that history. Hi, this is Shel Kaloper and I'm reading Chapter 1 of my YA sci-fi novella, Emoto's Promise. It's part of the Drowned Earth series of novellas published by Dead Set Press. So here we go, Chapter 1, Incompatible. Macy lowered herself off the scorching gutter that trimmed the reclamation centre and rubbed her scalded hands. She'd taken care to land quietly, pressing her back up against the sun-drenched building, commanding herself not to breathe but knowing it would only postpone the inevitable. They would find her eventually. They always did. For six years, the moats in Darwin Two City had tailed Macy everywhere. The small charcoal boxes appeared seconds after her feet hit the city streets, like silent electronic rats scavenging through the dust for human crumbs. They swept voraciously behind her as if to erase all traces of her incompatible DNA lest it contaminate their precious high-tech citadel. She wouldn't be surprised if Mayor Wolfram himself was using them to monitor her movements, ensuring she spent every waking hour managing the ocean wall that encircled the city, earning her life by keeping his kind safe from the treacherous waters beyond. Not that there was much else to do anyway. The whole beige city was made up of Newmans who rarely registered her presence. Newmans, <laughs> that was one of Wolfram's ideas too. He had them so tightly meshed with their AI symbiotes and gilded virtual worlds that they had renamed themselves New Humans, or Newmans as Wolfram liked to call them, unlike Macy who was merely human. It hadn't always been like that. When she was a child there were a few others like her, normals who couldn't adapt to new tech. Ordinary people who smiled. Kids who splashed in puddles, invented nicknames, had sleepovers and ran through rooftop hydroponic lanes. But as the years passed and automation increased, the city's need for normals diminished along with the food allocations. One by one by one they had disappeared until eventually it was just wall manager Macy, the Newmans and the Moats. A click from a steel door a metre away drew her attention. Macy let out a low, slow whistle she hoped would be mistaken for an ocean breeze squeezing between the tall, tightly spaced buildings. It was a copy of the whistle that had wafted under her bedroom door earlier that morning. Signal apparently received, the door opened and out shuffled her grandmother, Vala. Forgot your dinner second time since upgrade 24, she said in stilted syllables, as though she'd forgotten how her jaw worked. Fowler's hair was pulled back into a severe bun and she wore the same dreary overalls as the rest of the Newmans. Her clothes hung from her thin frame like wet linen draped over a wire hanger, all pale from being left too long in the sun. Fowler had been pretty once, when she was human. Macy had seen her in old hollow picks, relaxing at a dinner table, crinkled hair flowing over her shoulders, eyes twinkling at someone off camera. Now Vala's face had drained to Newman Grey and her once calming blue eyes had settled into milky stone. Macy wanted so desperately to hug da Vala for the great risk she was taking, but she knew better. Physical contact would leave DNA traces on her grandmother, unexpected for that time of day. That would mark Vala as deviating from her work plan. 
Non-compliance was the greatest of crimes in Darwin too. It would likely result in a painful reboot to end Vala's recognition of her granddaughter. Instead, Macy took the offered dinner pail and nodded her respect. Thanks, Gran, she whispered. Half a flinch from her left eye was all the response Vala gave before shuffling back inside and closing the door. Remembering the shortness of time, no moats yet, but soon, Macy put the handle of the dinner pail between her teeth, crouched to the ground and leapt back up to clasp the guttering. Then, moving hand over fist, she shimmied along the edge until she was around the corner of the building where a wide overhang made for a perfect escape platform. Once she hoisted herself up, it was an easy, moat-free jog across the low roofs of the industrial sector. When Macy arrived at a thoroughfare which led to the wall, she dropped back down to the pavement. Right on cue, two moats sped out of an adjoining alleyway and began their cleaning task. "'Gee, can't a girl take a dinner stroll?' she said, waving her pail at them in an exaggerated fashion. One of them shoved at her ankle, delivering a little spark of electricity from its outer casing that made her jump backwards, almost standing on the other moat. "'All right, all right, I'm going,' she said. Physical contact was unusual. This one must have new programming. She'd have to watch out for that in the future. Only when Macy arrived back at the wall and climbed the rusty ladder to the top did they finally leave. With a salute to the scurrying moats, she turned her back on Darwin II's towers with all their monotonous precision and sat down to gaze at the choppy sea. She knew she ought to be afraid, like the Newmans. The first few floors of the city sat well beneath, below the water level. If there was a breach of the old stone wall, it would be just as deadly for her organic form as for the technologically augmented Newmans. Yet the glistening blue waves always calmed her. Squinting at the darkening horizon, she wondered, not for the first time, if there was another girl sitting alone on another sea wall somewhere across the ocean, possibly a technologically incompatible girl like her. A small swell hit the wall, sending a spritz of cool water up to her toes, the smell of salty brine pulling her back to the job at hand. The moats would expect her to walk the evening perimeter check soon, yet the closed dinner pail still sat in her lap. It was time to finish her grandmother's mission. Macy unlatched the clip on the side of the pail and opened the lid. It made her instantly queasy to see the clear plastic bag inside, its dusty contents telling an old story she'd heard too many times before. As she read the label attached to the bag, tears welled in her eyes. It read, Amelie Banks, terminated at nine months of age, designation incompatible DNA. Macy opened the little bag, said an old prayer for the dead she remembered from Vala long ago and scattered baby Emily's ashes into the water. End of chapter one. This chapter is brought to you by Golgotha, a historical murder mystery set in the First World War trenches and based around true events. When the rumour of a murdered soldier that had been found crucified in no man's land sweeps the Allied trenches, this threatens an army-wide rebellion. One soldier from each nation's army is pulled from the ranks to join a team and investigate the crime, and what they discover will change the course of the war. Golgotha is available at Odyssey Books and on Amazon. 
Chapter 5 On what had once been a kitchen table, Fitzhugh poured through the reports and requests on his desk. By the end of that first day, the rumour of the crucified soldier had been passed along the entirety of the front lines. And in response, he had word issued that an investigation team was being pulled together from within the ranks. This would be no headquarters-led investigation. The team was to be elected by the men themselves, tasked with examining the gruesome murder of one of their own. It did not take long for a list of proposed names to appear, but most of the men nominated were next to useless. One Scottish unit had put forward a soldier who was perfect in every way, a former police inspector who had even been involved in a military inquiry. It was just a shame he'd been killed six months earlier, a fact Fitzhugh was positive the deceased Scotsman had been frustrated with as well. Still, there were enough names for at least a few candidates to merit an interview. Sergeant Andrews, he bellowed. The curtain acting as a door to his quarters swung open and a short, burly man with a boxer's nose and cauliflower ears stepped inside. Sir! Without looking up from his reports, Fitzhugh lifted a bundle of papers. Be a dear and gather these men for me, would you? Yes, sir, said the NCO, stepping forward and taking the offered sheets. Reading the first page, the sergeant turned back to the desk. Sir, you really want this guy? Yes, sergeant. Thank you, sergeant. You may continue with your duties, sergeant, Fitzhugh replied, still focused on the files in front of him. Yes, sir, Andrew said, turning and striding from the room. He then said in a tone similar to Fitzhugh's, It's your funeral, sir. At that last comment, Fitzhugh finally looked up at Andrew's retreating back, smiled, then returned to work. In the end, it proved easier for Fitzhugh to visit the men than have them brought to him. For a war fought in stagnant trenches, soldiers travelled a surprising amount. Between attacks, guard duty, time off, hospital visits, and the simple acts of eating and relieving oneself, in a day a single soldier could be any of a dozen places. Or so Andrews complained when he returned with the news he'd found only two of the men on the list. Both captain and sergeant left the office and began slogging through the thick, soul-sucking clay that turned the French countryside into a morass when there was even a hint of moisture in the air. Their first stop was with Corporal Malcolm McGavin of the London Fusilier Rifles. With both sides counter-attacking to try to take advantage of the chaos the Lions had been thrown into, the Fusiliers had been moved three times in the last week. Fitzhugh eventually found them taking their turns in the trenches, guarding an artillery unit sheltered behind the ruins of a small village. Following protocol, the two men entered the Fusiliers' forward HQ and presented themselves to the officer in command. The Fusiliers had a long tradition of being tough and well-led, so the fresh-faced teenage lieutenant sitting behind the desk inside caught both men by surprise. Lieutenant Frankie Smith had been in command for precisely four and a half hours. His meteoric rise due more to the shocking loss of senior officers to sniper fire and battle than to any particular talent the young man possessed. As the senior officer entered his tent, the young lieutenant leapt to his feet, knocking over the small ink pot he'd been using to fill his fountain pen. The subsequent spill covered much of the small table before him, along with all the papers it contained. Smith, unsure if he should save his paperwork or salute a superior officer, simply stood frozen, his eyes darting back and forth between the growing mess and the captain standing before him, struggling to hide a grin. The rough-looking sergeant next to the captain had no such intention, and he stood there with a monster smile stretching from ear to ear. Sir, Smith stammered, the spell finally breaking. 
Oh, do mop up that mess before it spills off the table and lands on my boots, will you, Lieutenant? With relief, Smith dove at the table, his panic hands knocking over the small candle that had been illuminating the tent. This toppled into the ink pool with a fizz, and the small room immediately fell dark. After a few seconds of complete silence, though Smith would later swear he could hear the sergeant's grin, the exasperated Fitzhugh asked, Get us a light, would you, Andrews? Sir, said the sergeant, who turned, tripped on the lieutenant's rifle on the floor, and plummeted headfirst out of the tent. His ungainly exit had the bonus of allowing some light from outside to enter, and Fitzhugh used this to locate a small stool and sit down. Thank you, sergeant, he called out. As Andrews hauled himself back to his feet and went in search of a light, Fitzhugh gestured for Smith to sit. Lieutenant, I'm after one of the soldiers in your command. This man has been chosen for a special task and is to be transferred to my office for temporary assignment. Certainly, sir, Smith said, dabbing at the ink with an old sack that had one time held potatoes. I don't know everyone yet, sir, but I'm certain we can find the man you need. His name, if I may ask? Corporal Malcolm McGavin. The lieutenant stopped cleaning and looked up from his table. Him I know, sir. Are you sure it's McGavin you're after? Absolutely certain. Why? Is there a problem? He's not dead, is he? That has been happening a lot lately. No, sir. McGavin is very much alive. Or at least, he was the last time I saw him. Though with McGavin you can never tell. Someone may have shot him in the last few hours. I see, Fitzhugh nodded, not actually seeing at all. It's not that he's a bad guy, sir, Smith confided, cleaning his hands on the now thoroughly blue rag. In fact, he's quite likeable. The problem is, the men believe he's something of a Jonah. Wherever McGavin is, trouble is sure to follow. And though he'll be fine, it's often those with him that aren't so lucky. Ah, Fitzhugh said, shaking his head with acknowledgement. So, he's likely up for a change of scenery then. Slapping both knees, the captain hauled himself to his feet and gestured to the tense flap. If you show me the way, I'll take him off your hands. The lieutenant, his thighs shining with bright blue ink, stumbled towards the flap just as Andrews returned, cradling a small, lit candle in his cupped hands. Thank you, Sergeant. That won't be necessary now, Fitzhugh said, patting Andrews on the shoulder as he departed behind Smith. Once the candle was placed on the small table inside, Andrews joined them, and the three men set off to find their quarry. Corporal Malcolm McGavin proved to be a tall, thin man whose uniform just didn't quite fit. Both the sleeves of his jacket and the legs of his pants rode up way too high, a clear sign he was wearing clothes that weren't of his own choosing. Though only 28, the harshness of life along the front lines, along with the lack of proper diet, meant the corporal looked more like 40, though the smile that split his face when he saw the ink stains on the lieutenant's pants helped reveal his true age. McGavin, this is Captain Fitzhugh and Sergeant... Uh, sorry, I didn't catch your name. Before Andrews could answer, Fitzhugh cut him off. His name doesn't matter. So, you're the infamous Malcolm McGavin, are you? Yes, sir, McGavin said, scrambling to his feet and taking the captain's offered hand. The McGavin from Scotland Yard? The look from his fellow soldiers milling about suggested this little nugget of information was one he'd been keeping to himself. Most of the soldiers filling the trenches were from poorer neighbourhoods, where the constabulary was looked upon somewhat unkindly. To find they not only had a cop in their midst, but one of the hated constables from Scotland Yard, well, that could only increase the level of anxiety at the supposed Jonah in their midst. Gee, thanks, sir, McGavin said, rolling his eyes towards the reaction of his squad mates. No trouble at all, Fitzhugh over-enunciated, continuing the now clearly uncomfortable handshake. Well, 
Lucky I seem to have a job for you. So come along and let us have a private chat. This chapter was brought to you by Golgotha. Available at Odyssey Books and on Amazon. The song you heard at the beginning was from Ben Sound and called The Jewel. While the main song was Signs to Nowhere by Shane Ivers. The Impossible History of Trotsky's Sister, read by the author, Marie F. Roberts. Chapter 2. Happy Birthday, Olga. What a morning. She'd performed an emergency tracheostomy on the train to help a fellow commuter whose throat had closed over with asthma. She'd killed the greengrocer who'd looked at her sideways when she'd politely asked if he had any kohlrabi. Then when she'd finally reached her own doorstep after the long train trip back, she'd encountered the postman and after asking him in for a cup of tea, they had retreated to the bedroom where, well, enough of that. She really must learn to switch off her mind. It had been a problem since her earliest years, and as she'd chided herself many times, it had even interfered with her work. This heat, mosquitoes, sweat in ribbons like she'd never seen. It completely tired her, exhausted simply by a morning's trip to the shops. She had done more than her fair share of work, some of it backbreaking, and still she'd gone on. But now the heat made it harder, or perhaps it was her age. She did not like to think about it, even today, which was her birthday. Slowly, Olga unpacked the groceries she'd bought home, lifting them from her plaid pattern shopping trolley. She'd bought nothing more than she'd had on her list. Cheese, tea, pork sausages, eggs, onions, cabbage. She, an old Bolshevik who'd once been in charge of relief activities in the Great Famine, who'd seen whole families starve on nettle soup, now feasted on unimaginable plenty. Sausages and eggs for breakfast almost every day. And why not? As she tasted the first mouthful of the day, she would say to herself, here's one in the eye for you, Kremlin Highlander. Today, Olga Kamineva is turning 70. She may be older, Officially, she's dead, she knows, so what age does that make her? Her friends have organised a little celebration for her. She told them she was turning 70 over a month ago. She knows it will involve the square, coconut-covered cakes the women call Almingtons. Is that right? Today she will confirm the name. If there's one thing she's been afraid of in this country, it is standing out, not getting things right. Betty has organised what the women call a spread, tea, more tea, and everyone will bring a plate except her because it's her birthday. And Betty will shout, surprise, happy birthday, when she opens the front door to see Olga standing there. She already knows which cake stand Betty will use, and the special red and gold patterned teacups kept in a frosted glass cabinet will also be produced. But it's all so dull, Olga feels like crying. In the middle of it all, she'll feel like shouting at them, do you not know my children are dead? That trust is just a lullaby for babies? But she will get through it as she's done for each of her birthdays and her children's. She will chew and swallow an Almington. Though she thinks they are a very dry kind of cake, she needs to wash down with the muddy tea they will serve. The women will sing a song. Happy birthday to you. She will smile and thank them. They will have chipped in for a present for her. She'll thank them from the bottom of my heart. The thought of it touches her deeply. 
She calms herself. Sometimes it's just all too much to bear. But today she will make it bearable. Olga walks to the end of the street to Betty's small wrought iron gate, the fence barely of knee height. It would never keep out intruders. But then she did not suppose that intruders, soldiers or secret police, were in the habit of overrunning these suburban bungalows. She's still cautious. Her small flat with a foyer and a door with a latch suits her just fine. And with a window overlooking the front path, she can observe any visitors. And of course, there are the boards she's nailed across the door in case anyone thinks of trying to kick it in. Betty's house stands behind a patch of grass called a lawn. Olga thinks this is the oddest concept she has come across as a use for land. Do they not have parks for people to promenade, covered with just such grass? Yes, they do. She knows that. So why do they use their land in this way? Why not plant vegetables and fruit trees so that you do not need to pay for your food? If she had land, that's what she would do. But she has none. She's never owned land in her life. Betty wears an apron and greets her with the expected words. Betty, who is of middling height, looks down at Olga, then at her apron. Whoop, she says, and reaches behind to undo the knot and take off the offending item. Olga is the first to arrive. This is often the case. She was so used to getting to meetings on time. Why break the habits of a lifetime? It was her brother, he who called himself Leon, who was notoriously late. She would never bring herself to call him that, or Trotsky, the underground name he retained even after the revolution. Olga looks around. She can see the flash of Betty's orange-red hair in the corner of her eye as she's busied herself with her preparations. The table is being set for a ladies' afternoon tea. The husbands made themselves scarce on such occasions. Olga knows where they will be, at their clubs or the hotels. Once she went to a hotel with Betty, to the ladies' lounge. They'd drunk something called a shandy. Olga thought it tasted like a drink for children. Where was the vodka? The other women arrive, Iris, Helen and Clarissa. Beverly was visiting her married daughter on the other side of Melbourne. Beverly had two daughters, but only one Olga notice was referred to as my married daughter. How is your married daughter, her friends would ask. That daughter was always very well, thank you, and the children also, both of them growing big and strong. Behind the Veil by E. J. Dawson Read by Veronica Strachan Chapter 3 It was cold when they kicked him out of the pub. Joseph only wanted to buy a bottle to take home. They hadn't sold it to him after he vomited in the gentleman's. But tonight, of all nights, he needed it. Just like every other night, really. The rain drenched him, but he didn't care. All he wanted was a drink. He didn't want to see his family sitting around the table praising his brother John for the promotion at the bank. Declining the dinner invitation, Joseph had made excuses before John's mocking laughter caught him at the door. Let him go, mother. He's tired already. Joseph had proven to himself that his level of sobriety was nigh on angelic then, compared to what he was now. The world swam and he struggled even to see in the dreary light. He was lost. The streets kept turning about. The normal route that should have taken him up Beverly and on to Gardner found him on Vista. 
rain turned to sleet as he stumbled through the sleepy streets. It was lucky, he thought, because if he hadn't been drunk, the cold would have bothered him. He'd get home. The rain had momentarily confused him. As the rain turned to frozen slush on the pavement, the slippery surface caught his unwary feet. There was a flash, and the sidewalk was level with his eyes. He blinked away stars, feeling an echo inside his head, and the world went black, street lamps dying out, only to come back. Joseph studied them, fading in and out, waiting for it to stop. A part of him assessed the damage, cold and distant. This was bad. He'd fallen and given himself a severe concussion. It wasn't the first time. The last time had been... had been... Joseph tilted his head to the side so he could retch, agony rushing through him, sharp this time as he spat out the contents of his liquid dinner. This is no good, he muttered to himself, staring at the amount of vomit on the pavement. Joseph got to his knees and his stomach regurgitated yet more liquid, the stench of alcoholic bile bringing up everything until his body was curled in its own excess. Pain lanced through his head, an iron spike that squeezed his eyes shut, and he didn't see the men walking toward him. "'Tad ossified, sir?' one asked. "'Might be.' Joseph slit an eye open to see two policemen there and breathing a sigh of relief. At least he wasn't about to be robbed. That would have been the highlight of the evening. Or possibly it had turned worse. It was the police after all. "'I'm trying to get to 161 South Gardner,' he said, searching for excuses not to be dragged to the drying-out tank. His father wouldn't bail him out, and when he threatened like he had tonight, he meant it. "'All good, sir,' the policeman said. "'We'll get you home.' They picked him up under the arms, the journey foggy until he was standing in the porch's light. The policeman knocked on the door, and Joseph couldn't stop them in time. The maid opened it, her mouth dropping open at Joseph's state and the presence of two officers. Oh, I'll get Mr Norman, she dashed off. Joseph tried to pull away to stand on his own two feet, but even with his stomach empty of alcohol, he was still drunk. His head hurt, thumping in pulse to the angry pounding of his father's footsteps. Thank you, officers, his father said and shook their hands, a glimpse of paper in his palm. The officers' smiles were wide at the thick wad of money, the cause for their kindness, which continued as they tipped their hats and left. "'Walk around back and get in the guesthouse, boy,' his father intoned, not letting Joseph in. "'I will not disgrace your mother by letting you into this house. I will not let you ruin John's good fortune because you've pissed your own pathetic life away. You were a doctor, and then you drowned in a bottle. I should have told you I was disowning you, but I didn't want you to come home like this.' You're a disgrace. It went on. Joseph stopped listening and he didn't even notice when his father shut the door. How long he'd been standing out on the porch, he was uncertain, the world's tears falling on his shoulders. He turned around, walking around the outside of the house and down the side path to the guest house. The door handle didn't want to open. The deck chairs around the covered pool were inviting, even with the cold, but the bitter chill was getting worse. He had to get into the guest house. There was a gas heater inside if he could concentrate long enough to open the door. Another shove pushed the door open and it slammed when he fell against it. Stumbling steps took him to the centre of the room. 
but looking about, it was as welcome as the rain-covered chairs outside. Dust sheets covered the furniture and became the ghosts of his past. Silent and accusatory, he waited to hear their pleas to make the pain stop, though they were naught but memories. Standing alone in the dusty space, Joseph fell to his knees and cried. No family, friends dead in the war. Few that understood what being in the medical tents was like, what it did to you night after night. The endless screams and the visions that haunted him. During the day now, it was worse. He could see them during the day. He could see them right now. Letitia wrenched herself away, manifested as physical reeling, and her hands slapped down on the table. The end had been so subtle it had wrapped about her with the tentative touch of a spider coming closer to bite her and share the death with Joseph. She gripped the wood, absorbed the warmth in her palm, sweat on her upper lip and a chill on her skin from the cold of Joseph's death. Miss Hawking, are you all right? Mrs Norman asked. Please, Letitia said before quieting her tone. A moment, please. The traces faded, fingers of death slipping by her as she recovered her breath and grounded herself in her own body. Letitia didn't know what she would tell these patrons. They wanted to know it wasn't their fault and to be sure Joseph hadn't passed with regrets. The guest house was an eerie reminder of their transgression. But it wasn't because Joseph was there, since he was glad to be gone from the world. It was their own guilt. Ms Hawking, Mr Norman said, voice gruff, disbelief on his face. Opening his mouth to contest her, she cut him to the quick. You were there at the door, when the policeman brought him home. She watched the skin of his pale cheeks become reddened, and she pushed on. You told him how unimpressed you were after the police left. Letitia didn't stop, even as Mr Norman glanced with shame at the now sobbing Mrs Norman. You told him to go out the back, not to make a fuss. Letitia changed the sentence, rephrased it so Mr Norman wouldn't be any more embarrassed than he already was, and at least now Mrs Norman knew what had happened. She could guess for herself what exchanged between her husband and son. And at at the end? Mrs Norman asked through a series of tearful hiccups. Letitia chose her words with care, wanting the Normans to go away at peace, but warier of how to treat their other children. Joseph was relieved to pass on, Letitia said, watching the father close his eyes and reprieve. You were right, Mr Norman, he wasn't fine after the war, and he didn't know how to make it better. This would not be the first time someone has come to me with a son or a husband who was stolen by the war long after it ended. But Joseph saved many lives. He did dreadful things for those lives but there are men who went home because of him. Not whole, but they went home. She let silence fill the space. But he never said, Mr Norman exclaimed. Letitia said nothing as he stared at her fury and shame, burning pink brands on his cheeks. He isn't here, Letitia said, and he's far better for it. Mrs Norman clung to her husband, who was now wrapping an arm around her. I'd like a moment with my wife. I cannot leave the room, Mr Norman, Letitia said, apology in every nuance of her words. 
since what I have done today is difficult and leaves behind a residue. We should leave, William, Mrs Norman said, composure returning as she rose with the help of her husband. Thank you very much for your time, Miss Hawking. I hope I've brought you some level of closure, Letitia said, coming to take Mrs Norman's outstretched hand and allowing a brief embrace before she pulled back, both arms on Mrs Norman's shoulders. Now go home, and when the spring comes, clean the guesthouse from top to bottom. There is nothing there than an echo of another victim of the Great War, and he does not reside there. Sniffling, Mrs Norman went to the door. Mr Norman was behind her, holding out his hand for Letitia's, and, like the incident with the policeman, there were folded notes in his hand, at least another twenty dollars. Letitia stared down at them before lifting her eyes to see the desperate hope of Mr Norman. If she took them, he would close the matter, the last page of a book. The certainty was so stark in the lines of his face, she didn't need to open herself to see his personality. He was revolting enough as it was, and it left a sour taste in her mouth. Mr Norman, Letitia said, low enough for his ears alone, you've paid me for my services already, and now you need never bring your family the shame of disowning your son. You saw? He stopped, hands clenching around the memory. She met his gaze and after a long moment he was the first to break away. Letitia went to the door where Mrs Norman had put on her coat and the pair left. Mrs Norman the only one to look back for a final goodbye. There was no sinister figure on the landing and Letitia closed the door. But something about the session was wrong. Nothing too untoward occurred. It was smooth from beginning to end, except for one small anomaly. Letitia went to the table and sat back in her chair, and instead of looking at the bowl, she tilted her head back to glance at the chandelier over the table. It had candles in some of its holders, placed to cast the right light on the mirror that hung from its centre. Round and twice the size of the scrying bowl, the chandelier was suspended from three chains, making it secure and avoiding sway as much as possible. It was tilted at such an angle so that when Letitia looked into it, she saw the scrying bowl. This was a different type of seeing. The bowl would drag her in and take her to the critical moments before death to experience it herself. Letitia always found the exact cause before she sought a person's end. Innocent and accidental deaths were easy. She'd take a few gentle moments to relate to loved ones without getting too close to the cause. Others were in sickness or injury, even the battlefield itself. She'd be with them until their death approached. Those who died at the hands of a murderer were not forewarned, or what little they saw came too late to Letitia. It was why she would not take murder cases. There were instances where the victim succumbed to shock before death, or were even taken unaware. Delving into their fate when she wasn't sure what was coming risked her dying with them. Old Mother Burroughs hadn't wanted to talk about what happened if Letitia got that far. But then she hadn't needed to tell Letitia. Her own experience had cut her to the bone, tore her soul to shreds and left her a wreck. Old Mother Burroughs was lucky to find enough sense within to repair. When Letitia used the mirror, they were simply visions, the sensation akin to the images that played in her head as she read works of fiction or watched a silent film at the cinema. But like the bowl that could drag her into the death, 
so too was the mirror dangerous. She could become lost in a reading. The chair was her safety. She would fall to one side or on the table when she became too tired. There was no such safeguard against the scrying bowl. She read the scrying mirror. It was far easier to slide into its vision, which reflected the remnants left in the scrying bowl of Letitia's last visit. Though it was still distant to her, she knew what she sought. Joseph's death replayed in her mind. But this time she was only an observer, not lost in his emotion. She was a figure on the street following him home, watching him fall over, remembering his subsequent pain. The humiliating scene at the front door was a thousand times worse at a distance without the alcohol or splitting pain to distract her from the horrible words of Mr Norman. For a moment, Letitia wished she could have made Mr Norman squirm all the more, but it was a brief and selfish wish. His tirade abated when Mrs Norman came looking to see who it was and Mr Norman shut the door without a backward glance. Letitia studied the scene from across the street, but now she came closer to Joseph, not watching him, but the shadows. Nothing alerted her senses or was wrong about the situation, but she followed him, fading into the guest house. Joseph stood in the centre of the room, crying before falling to the floor and curling up into a ball against the cold and all the nightmares the world had given him. Letitia knelt beside him, aware of what was coming and unable to stop it. But still, she touched Joseph's forehead with a cool hand. A figure leaned over her. She shrieked, slamming onto the floor as she came off her chair. Broken out of the vision, she stared around her ordinary session room. The shadow had disappeared, but there was no mistaking its presence. The figure, while terrifying her, had a discernible difference from the one she'd seen behind Mr Driscoll. In the world of visions, she could evade its form, even if the sense of dread was triggered by her own underlying fear. Unlike the being who'd glared over Mr Driscoll's shoulder, this figure had emanated no such ill intent within the vision of Joseph's death. But if a being of shadow haunted her sessions, then being anywhere near Mr Driscoll could risk the very damage that left her body scarred and her mind on the edge of its sanity. No amount of money would bring Letitia willingly back there. Not when she'd already experienced what lay beyond the veil. Hi there. This is Laurie Bell. Today I'm going to read you a little bit from my novel White Fire, a Tony Dell adventure. The sun set and the city woke up hungry. As the lights of the metropolis brightened, shadows crept into alleyways and emerged from dark corners, ready to conduct activities that should never see the light of day. In the heart of this darkness, evil held its breath. Tony squinted into the murky alley light, straining to make out any detail around her. Warm blood trickled down her face. Her bruised ribcage ached with every breath she took, and luckily, or unluckily, depending on your point of view, no onlooker or startled pedestrian had yet stumbled into the alley. Of the two men standing before her, she would have to watch the Torellian carefully. Her heart raced as she took in his muscular frame and giant arms. Towering over her by at least a head, he glared through tiny eyes. His face looked like he'd taken several beatings, leaving him with a flat nose and a misshapen jaw. She'd caught a glimpse of the Killmark tattoo on his wrist, 
with its distinctive green spiral barely exposed below the cuff of his sleeve. It was the mark of a gun for hire, and when she stared into his expressionless eyes, she knew she was in trouble. Sweat broke out across the back of her neck. He would kill her without qualm. The Trellian called the other man Tubby. The first time she'd heard it, she'd laughed given the excess body weight the man carried. She wasn't laughing now. He scowled at her through dull, watery blue eyes. Her gaze flicked over his rumpled clothes. He'd probably lived in them for the last few days. That's how long she'd been hunting him. Tubby shuffled from one foot to the other, one hand outstretched over the killer's wrist, as if he could actually stop the man from shooting her. She wasn't hopeful he'd show any mercy. Tubby needed her seal and the chip warrant for his arrest if he was to escape the spaceport's security cordon, and he could only get that if she was alive to print it. Hence the tense standoff. Her stare returned to the train killer. At times like this, she regretted her choice in career. Tubby stepped out from behind his beady-eyed bodyguard and grinned. So you're Agent Dell. From her periphery, she saw his eyes drop to travel the length of her body, pausing at her empty holster and missing Agent Star. Her skin crawled at the lingering leer. You're a freaky-looking one, that's for sure. She didn't take her eyes off the Torellian, watching for the slightest twitch. Forcing her breathing to remain steady took more concentration than she could spare, but like the Torellian, she remained poker-faced. Tubby shuffled into her view. His grin faded. Did you think I'd let anyone catch me? Especially a PST agent. He sneered when she didn't respond. With a shake of his head, he turned to the hired gun and spat, Just let me get the contract, then you can get rid of her. Leave nothing to link me to any of this. If other agents suspect she's been murdered, they won't ever stop looking for me, you hear? The Trellian didn't answer. His finger tightened on the trigger. Tony tensed. For Zandia's sake, don't do it here. I said get the contract first. If Galleon finds out, I'm a dead man, Tubby hissed, grabbing at the gunman's arm. Galleon? The Torellian stared blankly at his client's hand, and Tubby removed it slowly. Tony shifted her weight. Better do it here. It'll look like a beggar with a keg load of luck killed her. The man's voice sounded rough and scratchy, as though he didn't use it often. Shuffling back, Tony pressed up against the barrier of rotten wooden boards, hoping to feel them move, but they made a solid wall preventing her escape. Her gaze flew in every direction beneath her electronic shades. The alley was located behind a cheap, run-down bar called the Dockyard. It was the sort of place one might frequent when down on their luck, working two jobs to keep a family alive, and needing to get away for just a little while. She had no faith she'd be saved by the untimely appearance of a bar patron. Keg it. If someone didn't appear, it wasn't as though they would help her. People just didn't do that. Besides, the alley dead-ended only a few yards from her current position. Crates stacked haphazardly against the brick wall opposite looked like they'd always been there. The overflowing dumpster at the mouth of the alley smelt like it had never been emptied. Ever. And above her head was an unreachable metal ladder. It disappeared up into darkness, but that didn't much matter. Her breathing quickened with the realisation she was trapped. Hello, I'm Catherine McCullough, and I'm going to read a passage for you from... War Child, a memoir which I ghostwrote with my co-author, Annette Janik, and which was published in 2017. War Child is the story of Annette's mother, Lainey, who grew up as an illegitimate child in a very Catholic German village close to the Polish border just prior to World War II. Lainey's story is one of survival against the odds. She copes with poverty, ostracism, war, 
and finally the decision to migrate to Australia in search of a new life. In this scene, Lainey's mother Auguste, who has been forced to leave her baby in an orphanage, goes to visit her tiny daughter and makes the sudden decision to retrieve the child. And remember, this is a true story. <clears throat> Auguste searched the rooms, desperately looking for Lainey. The more she looked, the more agitated she became, the constancy of the distant screaming ringing in her ears. The orphans, who ranged in age from newborn to young children of four or five, appeared to be totally neglected. Most lay in cribs in spoiled clothing, rocking backwards and forwards, with nothing to stimulate or comfort them. Many stared back at her without the merest sign of emotion, their sunken eyes underlined with dark circles piercing her soul. She searched all the rooms off the passageway until she reached the end. There was no sign of Laney. As she turned to retrace her steps, she caught sight of some cribs in a garden at the rear of the building. From the distance, she saw Laney lying in one of these cribs. It had been placed under an enormous tree which had provided some shade from the hot summer sun. She raced out into the garden, rushing to gather up her baby, only to stop short at the horror that faced her. Laney was covered in huge caterpillars. Their nest obviously broken, broken loose from a branch on the tree, which had then fallen onto the crib below. The tiny child, unable to brush the creatures off as they crawled all over her face, arms, legs and body, lay writhing in futile despair. Her little hand waved frantically at her eyes as a caterpillar crawled between them. It was obvious that she had been crying until she could cry no more. The tears had left a myriad of tiny tangled tracks down her dusty cheeks and neck. The collar and front of the dress she wore were damp. Her big blue eyes pleaded for help. From that moment, Auguste decided that she alone had to take responsibility for her child. She felt her resolve harden, determined that her decision would be unshakable despite the remonstrations of her father, brothers and sisters, and inevitably the parish priest. She gathered baby to her and waited in the shadows for the dank passageway to be clear of life. In a heady moment, she dashed for the door, smuggling her baby out of the orphanage. Once she was past the front gates, the adrenaline stopped pumping and she began to think clearly again. What was she to do now? Afraid the nuns would come looking for her at the railway siding, Auguste took a detour along the edge of the river where she sat on the bank in the shade of a huge old oak tree and held her little girl close. She decided she would have to wait several hours before she could risk the return journey. Sitting on the bank of the river, Auguste contemplated her future and that of her baby. She felt desperate, alone, isolated. She was a disgrace to her family and her faith, her child the product of an illicit union between an unmarried Catholic mother and a Protestant father. In the eyes of her kin and the good people of the village of Kasha, nothing could be worse. Fingers pointed and tongues wagged and there were those who crossed the street rather than walked past her. Her life was already difficult and it would only become more so. She had run out of options. She summoned her courage and prepared to throw her baby into the swiftly flowing river and then dive in herself. She could not swim and knew that this would be the end for both of them. But in that second of desperation, her courage flagged. She looked into the eyes of her baby 
the eyes of Andreas Bielon, the man who had loved her. Lainey gazed at her mother with a wide-eyed mixture of trust and the unconditional love of the very young. August sighed and held her baby close. She loved her too much to end her life. She knew that theirs would be a love tested by adversity and the desperate need to survive. It would be a struggle, but they would face whatever life threw at them together. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy this very special month of reading. Without the slightest warning, a raging noise blew in, a roar that tore through the night and shook the earth. The dogs out the front of the pub started howling. Conversations faltered as everyone fell quiet. The noise kept on, steadily growing louder. Tobe and I turned, scanning the sky, seeing nothing. I looked over at him. He was already running for the road, heading for the hill behind the pub. I followed, unexpectedly clear-headed, taking everything in as if it had been laid out on display. Everyone else ran with us. Sheldon huffed and puffed, cursing his old body. Louise jogged next to me, smiled at me, rapidly overtook me. The Veets hurried along, somehow making the process look dignified. Max and Maxine moved fast, yet made it look like they were taking it easy. Kathy Ng half limped and half ran, clutching at her dressing gown, trying not to catch herself in it. The Kamari kid darted back and forth, circling the crowd, urging everyone to move faster. The first country captain led his people on, trailing well behind, watchful and wary. We kept running. We crested the hill. We all stood in silence, raggedly trying to catch our collective breath. The wind started, furnace hot, its screaming whine and the roar that tore through the sky were the only sounds in the world. From the corner of my eye, I saw someone lick their finger and hold it up in the air. I heard someone else say, It's coming from the west, dickhead. And then the word rain seemed to be falling from everyone's lips. A flash lit up the horizon, staining the sky dull orange and crimson red. Someone started yelling, Light, light, light to the west. For a moment, it burned too bright, blinding me. It soon faded away, only then to happen repeatedly. I looked around. Everyone seemed to have their eyes shut and their fists clenched. The world shook again. We waited, all eyes fixed on the horizon, everyone saying the same word over and over. Rain, rain, rain. But none came. After a while, people started drifting away, and the only sound left was their angry mutterings and disappointed sighs. I turned my back on the horizon as well. Like everyone else, I stared at the ground as I walked. No one wanted to look anyone else in the eye. Back inside the pub, no one was saying much. Scowls and frowns were the tin express twin expressions almost everyone wore. I looked around, becoming aware of an unsettled silence that had fallen over the room. A gloomy moment of calm. We were crushed by our disappointment and resigned to the fact. I pushed up to the bar. Louise Stiles smiled sadly. I returned her smile, with her mind held even less cheer than hers. She opened a bottle of tequila, poured me a shot. Eyes red rims, but still sharp, she was doing a good job of keeping it together, embracing what helped her keep her chin up. Serving drinks was only part of it. 
making people feel at home, that's what she loved. The pub, our town square, our shire hall, our fiddler's green, had only, kept, had only kicked on because of her. Overwhelmed by a sudden lethargy, a melancholy pisshead once again finding solace in the company of other melancholy pissheads, for a moment I wanted to just give up and chuck it in. I asked for a fresh round instead. It was either that or run desperately into the night, screaming wordlessly. My drink appeared in front of me. I pulled out my possum skin pouch, tried to roll up some bush tobacco, made a mess of myself. Louise eventually took the pouch from my unsteady hands and did the job for me. I lit up, raised my drink and finished it in a single swallow. Louise poured me another. We settled in for a long night. Daughter of Darkness, Chapter 1 Clara, 1944 It looked as if it was going to rain, but Clara had nearly finished ploughing the paddock, so she kept going, her thoughts elsewhere. No matter what she was doing, her thoughts were always elsewhere. Her memory of that dreadful night, so long ago now, was not exactly clear, but neither could she forget it. Her life had changed forever. Working out here on the farm helped her concentrate on something else, which is why she kept as busy as possible. The wind was blowing red dust all over her, and she was thankful she'd at least tied a scarf over her head. By the time she got to the gate, the spitting rain had become a deluge. She parked the tractor in the shed and ran to the house. The door opened just as she reached for the doorknob. Come in, love, you're drenched and covered in mud. She took her boots off and Mrs Woodruff took her coat. Off you go to the bath, love, and I'll fix you a cuppa. Thanks. She smiled and hurried off to the bathroom. Mrs Woodruff treated all the girls like family, but she could talk non-stop for hours and Clara needed a bath and some dry clothes right away. She hurried to the bathroom, which fortunately was vacant turned the taps to full bore and stripped off her muddy clothes. The water was deliciously warm and she breathed a sigh of relief as she felt it cover her like a silky warm blanket. Someone knocked on the door and she sang out, I'm in the bath. She wasn't too concerned though because there were no men around apart from old Mr Woodruff, who was probably somewhere in his huge shed pottering around with his machinery. He was bound to be one of the girls. Gracie opened the door and grinned. I just need to grab my face, screamed Clara. How was your day? It was fine until the dust came up and then the rain. What were you up to? Helping Woody with the sheep? Dipping? Oh, I'd rather drive the tractor. You get used to it. Better than working in the factory back in Melbourne. Clara nodded. It's nicer here, that's for sure. Now go away and let me have my bath in peace. Gracie grinned again and grabbed some face cream from the cupboard under the hand basin. See you when you get out of there. I wouldn't hurry. You're the last one in the ranks. Clara waved at her and sank down under the water, which was already cooling down. Her tranquility spoiled. She decided she may as well get out. A cup of tea wouldn't go astray. There were three girls at Woodruff's farm and enough work to keep them busy without overdoing it. Mr Woodruff, who preferred to be called Woody, 
was very respectful and treated them all as ladies. Not just ladies, but perhaps the daughters he had never had. There were two sons, both fighting in Europe, as were so many of the young men from Australia. The women's land army were doing as much as they could to help the farmers whose sons and other workers were fighting many miles away from home. Of course, they had neither the knowledge nor the experience of those who grew up on farms, but they worked hard and did the best they could. Mrs Woodruff was already cooking shepherd's pie for tea, which was one of Clara's favourites, along with roast lamb. She wasn't fond of lamb's fry, but since she didn't like to say so, managed to eat it anyway and had become used to it. The Woodruffs were good to the girls, and hard work or not, Clara was very glad to be there and knew she'd never forget the experience. The isolation of the farm, along with the easygoing calm of the Woodruffs, made her feel safer than she'd felt for years. Tea will be a while yet, dear, but it's not too late to have a cuppa. Thanks, Mrs Woodruff. I could really use one. Just top it up, then. The other girls have just had theirs. Clara went to the stove, carefully picked up the kettle, and poured about two cups of water into the teapot sitting on the edge of the wood stove. Mrs Woodruff put two cups and saucers on the table, along with a jug of milk from the refrigerator. I'll have another one. She smiled. No such thing as too much tea. Clara turned the teapot around six times and poured the hot black tea into the two cups before she sat down. She added a drop of milk and sipped her tea slowly. Mrs Woodruff drank her so quickly, Clara wondered how she didn't burn her mouth. It seemed she read Clara's mind and Clara realised she might have been stay staring. Yeah... I like my tea hot, Mrs Woodruff said. You city girls are a bit soft compared to us country women, she smiled. You're damn good at all the work you're doing, though, I have to admit. Damn good. And by the way, you can stop calling me Mrs Woodruff. That's my mother-in-law and she doesn't like it either. I'm June. Clara returned her smile and finished her tea. Can I help with anything, June? She shook her head. No, you can't. Go and have a natter with the other girls and tell them what my name is. You can all stay out of my way here, just like my sons when they're home. You're doing their work, not mine. She went very quiet, just for a few seconds, and Clara could see she was worried about her sons. Of course she was. They were on the other side of the world, risking their lives every hour of every day. She put her hand on June's, resting on the table and she immediately pulled away and stood up. Off with you, I've got work to do. After she washed her cup, Clara went to Marge's room. She had a room to herself while Clara, Gacy and Clara shared their room. Clara was happy to share. She felt safer when someone was nearby. Gracie wasn't bothered about sharing a room and neither of them snored, so they got on pretty well. Marge had a bit more space, so when they were all together, they tended to be in her room. There you are, Gracie said, as Clara poked her head around the door. About time, I thought she must have gone to sleep in the bath. I just had a cup of tea with Mrs Woodruff. She said we should call her June now. Marge nodded, good. She's such a nice woman, isn't she? And Woody's a sweetheart too, Gracie said. We were so lucky to end up here. 
Fresh air and all, Clara said as she flopped down on Marge's bed. Oh, help yourself, Marge said. Clara grinned. I am, thank you. Marge's bed was a double, which the eldest Woodruff son, Jake, slept on. The mattress was a bit more firm than Clara was used to, but it was nice to spread out until Gracie and Marge both flopped down beside her. Better not go to sleep, girls, she said, before she shut her eyes. Turns knocking on the door woke them all up at once. She stuck her head around the door. Anyone hungry? They got to their feet very quickly, and Gracie noticed a photo on, on the wall beside the door as they were on the way out. It was Jack, she knew, because they'd seen a photo of the two Woodruff boys together in the lounge room. He was dressed in uniform in this one and looked different. Serious, but very handsome. Both his hair and eyes were dark, but she couldn't see what colour, of course. Something about his eyes made him look kind. A nice bloke, she was sure. Clara, did you see this? Clara turned around and walked a few steps back to the bedroom. What? Gracie grinned and grabbed her arm. Take a look at the bloke whose bed Marge is sleeping in. Marge was still close enough to hear that and smiled. He does look nice, doesn't he? He can put his shoes under my bed any time. Gracie, behave yourself. Clara looked up at the photo and nodded. He looks like a very nice man, and since he's the son of Woody and June, I wouldn't expect any different. Right now, he's fighting a war, and you're going to have to wait till he gets home. Yes, Mum, Gracie grinned. You have more patience than me, though. Maybe I'll find someone else a bit closer to home. All the good ones are over there, though, Marge said. Gracie shook her head. There are some blokes who had to stay home because they're essential workers. Girls, June was calling out. Oops, Marge said. Better get a move on before Woody gets our tea. Woody was waiting at the table and they all sat down and passed the shepherd's pie around. June had cooked two pies because she knew, ladies or not, they were all good eaters and loved her shepherd's pie. If it's raining tomorrow, there's not much you ladies can do, Woody said. Is there anything in the shed we can help with? Gracie asked and he shook his head. Not that I can think of, but let's wait and see. They had rhubarb and apple crumble for dessert with cream, followed by another cup of tea. There's some dessert left. Anyone still hungry? June asked. They all shook their heads, even Woody. No, thanks, love. I'm full as a boot and I think we all are. Might be nice for breakfast, though. June nodded. Or a midnight snack. It'll be in the fridge, so help yourselves if you like it late later. Thanks, June, Clara said. That was delicious. It was dark by then and the rain was non-stop, so they couldn't do anything outside. I think I'll go to bed with my book, Clara said, and the other girls agreed. I reckon I'll be asleep before I finish the first page, though, said March. Find a better book, then, Gracie smirked. The book I'm reading is a Perry Mason story, and if that doesn't keep me awake, nothing will, Marge said. I'm just exhausted, and listening to the rain on the roof, it's so relaxing. She stood up, and the girls said goodnight to the Woodruffs and went to their separate bedrooms. The rain had cooled everything down, and Clara climbed under the blankets with her current book, Tomorrow is Forever. It had her crying at times, and she found it hard to put down. 
exactly what she wanted in a book, and this was just one of June's. She and Woody had a lot of books, and although Clara had brought a few along herself, it was nice to be able to choose something different. It was like a small library in the lounge room with a vast variety of stories. She was unable to read more than two pages, though, and Gracie was already asleep. Clara turned off the light and lay in her bed, listening to the rain on the tin roof. When she closed her eyes, she focused on the sound of the rain, and it wasn't long before she fell asleep. Her last thoughts, as always, of her lost family. Hello everyone, my name is Emily Rayburn and I will be reading to you from my novella Operation Sugarplum. Clara took a deep breath and smoothed her already smooth skirt. Okay, she muttered to herself, don't be weird, don't freak him out. She ran a hand through her hair. The humidity had made it go frizzy but there was nothing she could do about that now. She pulled it back into a messy bun and hoped for the best. Remaining calm was easier said than done. Through the doors in front of her was boy genius game developer Maxwell Drosselmeyer. Even the most casual of gamers knew his name. He'd finished high school at 14 and university at 17, and now 22, he already had job offers from Japan to America, but he'd turned them all down. Instead, he stayed with his uncle Joseph's Australian company, Drosselmeyer Industries, though he travelled often and consulted with plenty of other organisations. No one really knew whether it was all out of family loyalty or if there was some other reason. Clara had known Joseph Drosselmeyer since she was a young girl and her family had lived down the road from him and his wife, but she'd never met Max. Max was known for keeping to himself, but when she had got wind that he would be attending the company Christmas party this year, Clara had hassled Joseph for an invitation. She didn't plan on staying too long. She'd just tell Max that she was a fan of his games and that she was looking forward to the new platform he was rumoured to be building. Maybe she'd get a photo with him if he didn't mind. Then she'd leave. She was no good at back-end development, despite Joseph encouraging her to learn. She wouldn't fit in with many of the people inside, despite enjoying the games they produced. Leaving required going in in the first place, though, and she was still staring at the door. Well, if nothing else, it would be air-conditioned inside, and that was worth everything on a day like today. If she waited outside any longer, she'd start sweating, and dark patches under her sleeves was not her ideal first impression. Not that she was trying to impress Max Drosselmeyer in any way, but she didn't want him to be unimpressed, either. At the rate she was going, it was highly likely she would nervously spew out some embarrassing word vomit in front of him. No need to smell bad, too. She took another breath. All right, this was it. She was going in. She squared her shoulders and closed the gap between her and the door. On the other side, a security guard was checking invitations. She didn't have an official one, but she did have an email from Joseph's personal account on her phone, which he had promised her would act as one. The security guard frowned at it for a moment, but eventually nodded. Through that way, Miss Steele, he said, pointing to a large set of double doors. Behind it, Clara could hear music and chatter. She pushed the door open and entered a dim room. There were musicians on a stage up the far end, but the music was clearly intended for atmosphere. There was no dance floor and the players kept the volume low. There were Christmas trees dotted along the walls with sparkly baubles and loads of tinsel. Sprigs of mistletoe dotted the corners of the room and formed the centrepieces on the tables. The tables were tall and had no seats, but empty glasses were already being left on some of them as guests went to mingle elsewhere. A caterer walked past Clara with a tray of canapes held in front of her, and Clara snagged a mini quiche. She looked around as she bit into it and immediately saw Max Drosselmeyer in a corner holding a drink. 
He was leaning against a pillar, his head down as he focused on his phone. She wondered if she should just walk up to him, but decided against it. She needed to find Joseph. They had agreed that he would introduce her to Max. Also, she had her mouth full. She finally spotted the bespectacled older man talking to two men in suits. One of them threw back his head and laughed at something the other said, but Joseph's only reaction was a tight smile. He looked like he wished he wasn't there. Well, Clara was happy to come to the rescue. She made a beeline for Joseph and cleared her throat loudly to interrupt. Joseph's face lit up when he saw her. Clara, he said. How good to see you. He turned to the two men. I'm sorry, gentlemen. You'll have to excuse me. He took Clara by her elbow and steered her away. Thank heavens you arrived when you did, he said. Who were they? Clara asked as they walked. Press. Got in here on the pretense of being from the social pages or something. But they're really trying to get the down low on Max's new system. We've made it clear we're not talking about it yet, but they keep trying. Ugh. Indeed. They had nearly made it to Max's pillar by now. He looked up as they approached. Max, someone I'd like you to meet. This is Clara. She wanted to meet you. Joseph. Max avoided looking at either of them. Just this once, Max. Come on. Clara's not going to hurt you. Now that the moment had come, Clara started to feel awkward. What was she doing? Max clearly didn't want to meet fans. The fact that he was hanging back from the party suggested he didn't really want to meet anybody. Clara blushed and turned away, looking to see if she could make a quick getaway. Obviously, this had been a terrible mistake. She shouldn't have bothered Joseph to let her come. He should have told her it would make Max feel uncomfortable. Max took a deep breath and stuck out one hand. Hi, Clara. Clara shook the proffered hand, her embarrassment ebbing a little. Hi. I just really wanted to say that I'm a big fan of what you do. I know you were the driving force behind the Oinoro's dream, and I really loved playing it. So I, um, wanted to tell you. The words came out in a rush. Max gave her a small smile and nodded. Thank you. I appreciate it. Joseph looked from Max to Clara and back again and then said, Max, why don't you go with Clara and get some fresh air? Maybe up to the roof. What? Clara exclaimed. Why would I... Max began at the same time before trailing off with an apologetic look at Clara. Joseph leaned in and whispered something in Max's ear, glancing pointedly at Clara as he did. When he finished, Max sighed and looked at Clara. Clara, would you like to accompany me up to the roof for some fresh air? He looked back at Joseph and raised an eyebrow. Joseph raised his own in reply. Clara looked between them. Um, sure? She ventured. She wondered exactly what Joseph was trying to do, but then shoved the thought aside. She was being presented with the chance to spend one-on-one time with Max Drosselmeyer. She could ask him about his creative process, where he came up with all his ideas. She followed him to the end of the room. What did he say to you? Clara asked when they reached the lifts. Max pressed the up button and cleared his throat. He said it might be good for me to spend time with someone my own age. Clara blushed again. You don't have to, she said. I mean, you shouldn't let your uncle push you around. And you don't even know me. I could be some crazy fangirl, or I could be from the press, like those people Joseph was talking to when I got here, trying to get the dirt on the platform you're building. She noticed Max staring at her, smiling slightly. Oh God, she'd been rambling. What had she said? She wasn't even sure now. It had all come out in a stream. I'm pretty confident you're not here to get the dirt on my work, he said eventually. Clara realised she was focused on his smile, which had grown wider as he spoke. It wasn't really fair that he was a genius and attractive. You don't? She replied, shaking herself. And Joseph's probably right anyway. I don't spend enough time around people my own age. But it's too hot to go up on the roof. Would you like to see what I've been working on? Clara blinked. 
You mean your new system? It's nearly at the point where we'll be seeking outside input on it. How'd you like to be the first? Clara gaped. Max was asking her to game with him? Sure. Lead the way. I'd like to read a, a selection from Being Lucy. And this is when she is um, a grown woman, but still fairly young. When the leaden skies are at their darkest, matching my mood, I pull on my warmest coat and ride Ginger to the top of Mount Delusion. I cannot remain in a hut beside Ma. I miss the summers on the mountain with the cattle and quietly curse Uncle Jeff for selling out. Snow gently pats on my bare head, soothing me. Ginger responds to the kick of my heel and gallops through the snow gums. The wind picks up and needles of ice sting my cheeks as I allow Ginger to have his way. His increasing speed does not frighten me, and anyway, I've no way of pulling him up before he comes to a standstill, panting and exhausted. Reluctant to leave the mountain, despite the growing storm, I turn Ginger and head down the southern side, slackening his space to enjoy the forest that surrounds me. As we drop in altitude, snow gums slowly give way to alpine ash. There is no sharp divide. The ash begins to appear among the thinning snow gums, first one, then a couple. As the numbers grow, the snow gums hunch below the ash until they finally disappear. In their place, huge tree ferns appear at the feet of the forest giants. Birds become more vocal now there's somewhere safe for them to play and hide. As always, the destruction caused by the loggers on these slopes angers and saddens me. Knowing they have left for the season, I follow their wheel tracks as they wind through the gullies and ridges I haven't ridden for years, not since the days when I brought our cattle up this way. It is only when I am in thick ash and tree fern that I come across a structure altogether foreign in this place. Halfway down the mountainside, nestled in the protective fold of two ridges, stands a two-roomed hut. Its galvanised iron chimney faces the track. The weatherboards are painted red-brown and the timber door stands ajar. I range Ginger in and watch from behind a large trunk, barely breathing lest my presence should be discovered. Ginger flicks his ears, strained, like mine, for the sound of human activity, but there's no one about. I dismount and approach a partly open door along the far side of the hut. I push the door and sidle inside. The dim interior smells much like my own hut, damp and smoky. Pinpoints of daylight shine through the holes in the fireplace at the far end. There is just enough daylight through the windows, grown green with mould in this damp forest, to see the walls aligned with newspaper. Firewood lies stacked in the fireplace, with tins of stew and spam lined up across the mantelpiece. So they even eat the same as I do. A guitar, much the worse for wear, leans in the corner near the fireplace. I assume that this hut has been built by the loggers who spend the summers here cutting ash. I walk outside and look around. The forest grows right up to its walls, but beyond the distant gully, where once mountain spurs bristled with alpine forest, the slopes are now bare. 
Surprised at the fury of the storm that followed me down the mountain, I tear the ginger in the lee of the hut and run back inside. It might belong to the loggers, but I have every intention of making advantage of its shelter. I light a fire and empty a tin of stew into a battered old saucepan. Looking for water, I go outside again and find a large pond contained by an earthen bank and fed by water bubbling from a spring. Beyond the dam, a tunnel lined with rusty galvanised iron zigzags its way into the hill. I follow the tunnel into a space black as pitch. My gumboots squelch on the muddy floor. I feel something wriggle inside my boot. I hate leeches. This hole in the hillside makes my flesh crawl. For two days the storm rages and I remain in the forestry hut. On the second day, I pick up the old guitar and brush my fingers across its rusty strings. My ears pick up that it's out of tune, but I feel the vibration through its back against my belly and I feel joy. I stop the string with my finger on one of the metal strips across its neck and pluck the string again. The note changes. I try another spot on another string and it changes again. I find I can play a tune by letting my fingers dance around it and I pick out tunes I know. I sing and, with no one to hear me, the words come out clear to my ears. Hi, this is Mary Lou Stevens, author of The Last of the Apple Blossom. And I'm reading today from chapter 23, March 1970. Catherine enjoyed the challenges of being a grade two teacher although she'd forgotten how much more work was involved. Today she'd stayed after class to catch up, which meant she was running late for the packing shed. On her way home to get changed, she popped in to apologise to Annie. Her friend was at the grader, tossing rejected apples into one of the bins bound for the factories. Sorry, Catherine said. I'll be back in 20 minutes. Don't worry. It's nearly tea time anyway. Why don't you come over to the house and have it with us? Catherine smiled knowingly. You're hoping I'll make a pudding, aren't you? Oh, what a lovely idea, Annie grinned. The thought never crossed my mind. She took Angela by the hand and together they walked towards the house. In the kitchen, Catherine noticed the unusual quiet. Where are the boys? Making the most of the twilight, either down at the river crabbing or up in the bush building forts. Lately, though, it's billy carts. Michael and Eric are trying to outdo each other, seeing who can build the best one. And the younger ones watch on, dying to be like their big brothers. The old pram got taken apart for the wheels, just as well I'm not having any more children. They'll be back when they get hungry. Annie began preparing dinner, pricking sausages for the pan and choosing potatoes and carrots for the pot. Catherine looked around for Angela, who just a moment ago had been at her mother's side. And Angela? She'll be in the lounge room having tea with her dogs. She does it every evening. It's the sweetest thing. How adorable. Annie sighed in contentment. She certainly is. Her expression changed, though, as she looked Catherine up and down. Is that what you wore to school today? I know you love that dress, but really? What? Catherine ran her hands down the skirt of her favourite dress. She'd bought it with her first paycheck, how proud she'd been that day with her own money to spend. As soon as she'd seen the frock on the rack in Fitzgerald's, she knew she had to have it. 
The light blue of a springtime sky and sprays of tiny pink flowers had reminded her of apple blossom. Oh, Annie gave a quick nod. You understand, don't you? The dress belonged to a simpler time, before the fire, when her brother was still alive. The 60s were over, both the good and bad. Times had changed and so had fashion. I guess so. You can't meet the Queen wearing a dress like that. Even she's more up to date than you. I'm not meeting the Queen, Catherine laughed. Most likely I'll be squashed behind rows of children, all waving Union Jacks and lucky to catch a glimpse of her. In less than a fortnight, the Queen was coming to the Valley as part of her Australian tour. Her Majesty wanted to experience firsthand the crop that had seen Tasmania dubbed the Apple Isle. The royal entourage, including Prince Philip, Prince Charles and Princess Anne, were going to visit the Coombs Orchard at Longley to wander through the trees and talk with the pickers. Then they would travel to the Frankhams at Ranelagh to watch apples being graded, packed and loaded. Mr Frankham had installed a brand new toilet in case one of the royals was caught short. The whole of the Huon Valley was dizzy with excitement. Every school child in the district and most of their parents will be descending upon Ranelagh for the royal walkabout to cheer and wave flags. Annie turned back to the stove. The smell of cooking sausages made Catherine's mouth water. She'd had a long day at school, only managing a couple of bites of her sandwich while on playground duty at lunchtime. How about you pop up to Hobart after school on Friday for late night shopping, Annie said. Buy yourself a few nice things, including at least one new dress. Can you spare me in the packing shed? I'll manage. Don't worry about me and the packing shed or your own orchard or the school. Go up to town, do some shopping, see some friends. Think about yourself for a change instead of being a slave to everybody else. A tightness in Catherine's throat prevented her from saying anything. Is that how Annie saw her? As some kind of martyr? It was true. She'd worked almost non-stop since returning to the valley. The orchard needed so much attention and was reliant on her wage from teaching. It took everything she had and still demanded more. The new trees were all growth and the fruit wouldn't set. The disappointment had hit her and her father hard. The ag department was helping them with solutions. Different trees for cross-pollination, bringing more bees in and grafting other varietals. But the results wouldn't be known until next year. Another year of teaching at the Signet School and another season packing for Annie and Dave, and another cold winter reworking and pruning in the family orchard for no return. What had she expected when she'd raced back to find the orchard in ruins three years ago? The endless work and worry had left her exhausted. It was as if she'd forgotten herself and buried her true nature deep along with Peter. Only Charlie had brought her back into the light, the Sunday afternoons she spent with him and Mark were her source of sustenance and joy. Mark and she had moved on from the disappointment of Lara being untraceable, but there would be no more kissing, no more thoughts of a future together. Their friendship was purely platonic, even though their love of Charlie made their bonds stronger than most. Even so, Catherine's father outright refused to let her move into the old cottage, implying she couldn't be trusted because of her association with Mark. His disapproval was so fierce she'd resorted to stretching the truth. She told her parents she was spending her Sunday afternoons at Annie's. Her father didn't need to know that Annie's 
could mean any part of the Pearson's place, including one particular picker's hut. Greenhalen, Chronicles of Algarth, Book One, by L. A. Webster. Read by Emily Rayburn. Chapter One, Sarah. Sarah dragged her slippered feet into the kitchen, giving her hair a desultory rub with the towel. Three days in Sydney, culminating with a nightmarish drive on rain-slick dirt roads peppered with suicidal kangaroos, had left her drained and almost as jumpy as the animals. What she needed was wine, followed by bed. The phone buzzed, snatching her breath in mid-yawn and setting her heart thudding. The stone counter amplified the normally muted tone, transforming it into a bullying demand for attention. If only she'd switched it off earlier. If only she could ignore it now. But the hard truth was that she couldn't afford to miss even one potential client, not while she was still building her business. Clamping the towel to her head with one hand, she snatched up the annoying device. Wattleford Garden Care, Sarah Martin speaking. You're back. Good. I'm coming over. Click. She should have let the call go to voicemail. Then she could have turned off the lights and pretended not to be home. The last thing Sarah needed tonight was a visit from Jackie, especially when her neighbour was in dynamo mode. Nothing she could do about it now. She gave her damp hair one last rub and raked it behind her ears, letting it hang in dark strings over her shoulders. Jackie would have to take her as she found her, tangled ends and all. She dumped the towel in the laundry and unlocked the French windows. Golden light spilled out onto the wet brick patio. Sarah stood in the doorway for a moment, breathing the cool, moist air and watching the raindrops etch fine, silvery lines against the velvety blackness. Her shoulders relaxed. Maybe Jackie wouldn't stay long. Turning back to the kitchen, she fetched two glasses and the bottle of Shiraz Jackie had given her for her birthday. VAT 26 declared the looping red letters on the label. Because you're turning 26, get it? Jackie had crowed as she handed it over. By the time Sarah had wrestled the cork out, her visitor was barging into the room, shaking a fine mist of droplets from her springy ginger hair. She halted in the middle of the kitchen, her thin sandy eyebrows arched in surprise. Why are you in your pyjamas? Are you sick? Just tired, Sarah said. The garden conference was pretty full on. Actually, I only got home an hour ago. The drive was hideous. She cherished a faint hope that this might give her energetic neighbour the hint to keep the visit short. For good measure, she added a yawn. As usual, Jackie was oblivious to hints. Good, because I want to talk to you and I can't afford to get sick just now. Too much to do. She sat down opposite Sarah and picked up the bottle. Wine, just the thing. She poured full glasses for them both and lifted hers in a toast. Confusion to our enemies. Some of the wine sloshed out and splattered onto the table. Jackie took a generous swig of the rest and sat back with a satisfied look on her thin, freckled face. Sarah frowned. Do we have any enemies? Of course we do. Melville Barnett is the enemy of every right-thinking human being. And if there are aliens or people living in alternate dimensions, he's probably the enemy of them too. So much for a restful evening. If this was going to be a Melville Barnett conversation, Sarah already knew two things. It wouldn't be restful and it wouldn't be brief. She gulped a large mouthful of wine to brace herself for the onslaught. 
Slightly fortified, she sighed and asked the question that Jackie's eager expression was so clearly expecting. What's he done now? Only got approval for an open-cut mine in the Brogans. The Brogans? Shock stiffened Sarah's features. The Brogan Mountains lay only an hour's drive from Waterford, a landscape of ancient twisted trees, lichened boulders, cool, damp gullies crammed with ferns, dry, grassy slopes jewelled with wildflowers every spring. An almost untouched place, magical and strange, wild and beautiful. An image rose in Sarah's mind. Giant machines ripping at the ground, gouging out massive craters, destroying all that precious, unique life, throwing it aside like so much rubbish. All to make an obscenely rich man even richer. Her jaw clenched and her fingers tightened around the stem of her wine glass until it was in danger of snapping. Jackie nodded in grim satisfaction at the effect of her news. Sarah forced her fingers to loosen. She found her voice. But the Brogans are a protected area. Jackie snorted. Protected? That wouldn't stop Barnett. He's probably bribed someone. Or maybe blackmailed them. Something, anyway. You know what a crook he is. They had a late night hearing and pushed it through when there was hardly anyone there. No one knew a thing about it until this morning, and by then it was a done deal. A pulse beat in Sarah's temple. Why did men like Barnett always get their way? Stupid? Greedy? She stopped that train of thought in its tracks and deliberately slumped back in her chair, shaking her head. It's horrible, but I don't see what we can do about it. Don't be such a defeatist. There are plenty of things we can do. Jackie drained her glass and clunked it back down on the table. Sarah hoped she hadn't cracked it. I think Sarah started, but Jackie rolled right over her. With both hands free to wave about for emphasis, she went on and on, spouting enthusiastically about protest marches and road blockades and lying down in front of bulldozers. Yes, but Sarah tried again, but Jackie just kept going. If that snake thinks we're going to take this quietly, he'd better think again, that's all. No one would ever accuse Jackie of taking anything quietly. Just being in the same room with her was exhausting. Would she ever stop talking? Her voice rose and fell, her hands swooping up and down in accompaniment. The extravagant gestures began to threaten not only her empty glass, but also the bottle. Sarah quickly moved them to safety. Her own glass was still half full, but she put it down carefully and pushed it away. She didn't want it anymore. She'd had enough, and not just of the wine, or even Melville Barnett. Why did Jackie always have to be so over-the-top, so single-minded, so selfish? Why couldn't she see, or care, that Sarah didn't want to deal with any of this right now? An almost overwhelming urge to shout at her infuriating neighbour, just yell at her to shut up and go home, hit Sarah so hard she had to clench her teeth to stop the words forcing themselves out. She wouldn't allow herself to lose control, no matter how much she was provoked. Oblivious to Sarah's struggle, Jackie ranted on, her voice rising even higher. Sarah's head throbbed painfully. She pressed the fingers of both hands hard to her temples. A moan slipped out between her teeth. The flood of words cut off. Jackie stared across the table with her mouth hanging open. Sarah seized her chance. She told Jackie tightly that she agreed with her, but she had a headache and was too tired to talk about it anymore tonight. She wanted to help, but couldn't commit herself to anything specific right now. It was true enough. Sarah did want to help in some way, once her emotions had calmed down. 
Perhaps she could sign a petition or write a letter of protest to their local member, something measured and sensible. Jackie didn't seem offended as she rose to go, but it was hard for Sarah to see anything clearly through the bursts of light that had started flashing in front of her eyes. Blessedly alone again, she fumbled two painkillers from the cabinet and gulped them down with the rest of her wine. Then she tottered upstairs to bed. Even with her head pounding, it was a relief to be lying flat in the darkness. She wasn't sure what had happened tonight. Where had all that fury come from? She hadn't experienced such strong emotion for years. Not since... She pushed the memory away. She must be even more exhausted than she realised. Damn Jackie and her crusades, stirring everything up like this. All Sarah wanted was to live quietly in this small backwater village, minding her own business, literally. Was that too much to ask? She shook her head, wincing as even that slight movement sent daggers of pain shooting behind her eyes. She closed her eyelids, refusing to think about any of it right now. Jackie, Melville Barnett, open-cut minds and corrupt politicians. She'd always wanted to be a gardener, and now she was making her dream a reality. Focus on that. She carefully eased the quilt up to her chin and then stilled herself, concentrating on her breathing. Eventually the headache receded. She was drowsy and comfortable and had no work scheduled for tomorrow morning. She could lie in as late as she wanted. She took several long, slow breaths and let sleep claim her. At six years old, Sarah has never seen roots before. She reaches out her finger, snatches it back, not sure if the tangled white mass is alive, might suddenly wriggle and give her a fright. Linda, her foster mother, softly laughs at her. Her laughter isn't like the taunting of the big boys back at the children's home. It doesn't make Sarah feel like curling up into a ball, wishing she could squeeze herself so small that no one will notice her at all. Linda's laughter is as warm as the sun on Sarah's back. Linda loves her, and Sarah loves Linda, fiercely and completely. It's all right, Sarah, they won't bite. Go on, feel them. Trusting her, Sarah reaches out again, touches the cool, furry softness, rubs the gritty dirt between thumb and finger. See? This is how plants eat. They reach out through the soil with their roots and drink in water and all sorts of good things. Then they grow big and strong. This little one will be as tall as you by the end of summer. Linda nestles the little plant in the hole and scoops crumbly dirt around it and over the roots until Sarah can't see them at all. Here, you can do this one. Captivated, she holds out small chubby hands cupped together to receive the seedling as if it is a rare treasure. And it is. This is. This moment, kneeling on the ground beside Linda, with the sun warm on her back and the smell of green things all around her. Safe. Loved. Home. She wants it to last forever. Sarah woke and stared up into the darkness with hot, dry eyes. It hadn't lasted forever. She had made sure of that. Stop it. You're not a child anymore. She hadn't dreamed of Linda for years. She'd put all that behind her, learned to control her emotions, keep them locked away where they couldn't hurt her or anyone else. Somehow, her anger with Jackie had dredged up memories and feelings that were best forgotten. She closed her eyes, willed her body to relax. I'm an adult now. I've made my own life, my own home. I don't need a family. I don't need anyone.
Sarah woke to brilliant yellow sunshine filling the bedroom. A blue, rain-washed sky greeted her through the window. It was going to be a perfect autumn day. With winter just around the corner, such a day was a precious thing and she intended to savour it. This afternoon, she'd be meeting with a new client, her backfence neighbour in fact. Stephen Cooper, Wattleford's new doctor, had just moved into the big overgrown garden behind hers. He wanted her to take a look at it and give him some advice. But that was later. Right now, this magnificent morning was all hers and there was only one place she wanted to spend it. She was halfway down the stairs when the events of last night intruded into her thoughts, stopping her in her tracks. She'd been so incensed with Jackie. Over nothing, really. And then the dream? She needed to get a grip. At least the headache had gone. Shaking the disturbing memories from her mind, she continued down the stairs and into the kitchen. She wished someone could block Melville Barnett's plans, but it didn't seem likely. He had too much money and influence. The mine would probably go ahead, no matter what Jackie or anyone did. Another unique, beautiful place would be ruined by greed. She thrust the depressing thought aside and made coffee. She was still wearing her pyjamas, but she couldn't wait any longer. She opened the French windows and carried her favourite green mug outside to the small, glass-topped table under the cherry tree. Red and gold leaves hung in perfect stillness against the bluest sky she'd ever seen. Around her slippered feet, the same scarlet and yellow were set against the bright green threads of new grass. The autumn rains had brought her summer-scorched lawn back to life, and now it had decorated itself with fallen cherry leaves to welcome her home. The almost fruity aroma of decaying leaves and rich, moist soil filled her nostrils. She breathed deeply as she sank into her wrought iron chair, heedless of the slight dampness seeping up from the cushion. She sipped strong, hot coffee while her eyes revelled in the colours of her garden. Beyond the little patio, huge scarlet and orange flowers glowed against finely cut deep green or purple-black foliage. Long wands of pink and burgundy blossom reached for the sky or leaned drunkenly against each other, almost blocking the narrow brick path. This was Sarah's favourite time of year. Most of her clients preferred spring, with its tiny new leaves and half-open buds, each clump of new growth in its own defined space. Their highest praise for a garden was that it was neat and tidy. Sarah worked hard to give them what they wanted. She weeded, pruned, trimmed and shaped their gardens until they were happy with the results. But in her own little patch, the first she'd ever owned, Sarah let the plants have their way, only interfering when she felt it was in their interest. She pulled out greedy weeds that would have taken over if given the chance. She pruned to encourage healthy growth. If clumps became huge and overcrowded, she thinned them out. But nothing more. Seeds fell everywhere, the resulting seedlings growing together into one joyful, wild, glorious mess. Leaving her empty mug on the table, she rose and pushed her way between the wet plants, careless of the soaking her pyjamas were getting. She stopped and knelt in front of a dense mat of stachys, stroking one of its large grey leaves, enjoying the almost animal softness that had given it the common name of lamb's ears. She reached out and gently rubbed the fine silver needles of a nearby helichrysum, breathing in deeply as the delicious scent of curry drifted up into the warm, still air. It was such a rich, solid smell, she could almost see it. She blinked. It wasn't her imagination. 
The air above the curry plant shimmered like the haze above a bitumen road on a blazing hot day. And the haze was thickening. Now it looked more like wisps of mist or pale smoke. Gauzy tendrils coiled and twisted in the air, right in front of her eyes. Dizziness assailed her. She shook her head, which felt oddly heavy, but that just made the mist swell faster. It was still getting thicker. She could barely make out the plants in front of her anymore. Her head was spinning now. She put both hands flat on the ground to steady herself. Maybe she shouldn't have taken those painkillers on top of the wine last night. She closed her eyes and forced a deep breath. The curry smell disappeared, replaced by the sharp, antiseptic scent of pine. Icy air flowed into her lungs. Her throat closed in shock. Her eyelids flew open. The fog was gone. Her heart thumped as if she'd been running. Her hands felt cold. She looked down at them. They were curled like claws, her fingers half buried in the dirt. Playing with your pets again. Sarah's heart gave another huge thump. She gasped and swung her head around so fast she almost wrenched her neck. Jackie was leaning over the low fence between their properties. Well, I suppose they're easier to look after than a dog. At least you don't have to take them for walks. She tilted her head to one side and raised an eyebrow, a smile hovering. But do you really think patting them helps them to grow better? With an enormous effort, Sarah pulled herself together. She took a few more quick breaths, brushed the dirt off her hands and stood. She still felt shaken, but she was pleased her voice came out sounding relatively normal. I don't know if it helps them, but it can't hurt. Well, you must be doing something right. After all this rain, the last few leaves on my roses are covered in black spot and mildew. Yours still look great. Sarah turned her head briefly to see for herself. The billowing rose hedge along the back fence had finished flowering, but the bushes did seem to be green and healthy. You, on the other hand, look a bit pale, Jackie said. Are you all right? Yes, sorry. I felt a bit light-headed for a moment. It was probably hunger. She'd eaten nothing solid since lunchtime yesterday, just the wine last night and black coffee this morning. I think my blood sugar's a bit low. Well, go and have breakfast then. I'm off to get some flyers printed. We have to start moving on this mining thing. After Jackie had gone, Sarah headed for the back door, intending to follow her neighbour's advice and find something to eat. But a tendril of thought was nagging at her. The rose hedge along the back fence. It hadn't seemed quite right. She turned to have another look. The roses were green, as Jackie had said. Greener than they should be at this time of year. The leaves should have begun to change colour and fall by now. Curious, she drew closer. Something was wrong. The leaves had turned and dropped as she'd expected, all of them by the looks of it, forming a red and brown carpet beneath the hedge. But they hadn't left the stems bare. Short bunches of twisted, pale green shoots crowded every arching cane from root to tip. Hundreds of them. Thousands. She recognised them instantly. This was the way rose bushes reacted to certain kinds of weed killer. And with this much damage, the outcome was certain. The entire hedge was doomed. Tears filled her eyes. She stretched out a hand in an instinctive desire to comfort the plants, then pulled it back. There was nothing she could do. How could it have happened? She didn't own any weed killer. 
Neither did Jackie nor Sarah's elderly neighbour on the other side who grew organic vegetables to sell. Only one explanation made sense. Someone had sprayed herbicide through the back fence. Someone? No, not just someone. Dr Stephen Cooper. It had to be him. He must have done it when he moved in. Her beautiful roses. How dare he? Forget waiting until this afternoon. She was going to confront him now, as soon as she'd changed out of these wet pyjamas. Righteous rage propelled her into the house and up the stairs to the bedroom. By the time she'd changed into jeans, shirt and boots and tugged her hair into a ponytail, the first heat of her anger had died down to a steady simmer. She wouldn't just storm into his house and blast him, much as he deserved it. She would be an adult. She would knock on his door, tell the slimy weasel she knew what he'd done and ask him what the hell gave him the right to kill her plants. Only more politely than that. When Stephen opened the door, his eyebrows rose in surprise above his black-framed glasses. Then his lips broke into a smile. His teeth gleamed whitely against his chocolate-brown skin. She had forgotten how good-looking he was. His white T-shirt had the words, Trust me, I'm a doctor, printed in big blue letters next to a cartoon of a stethoscope. Trust him. Ha! Sarah, you're a bit earlier than I was expecting, but it's nice to see you again. His pleasure seemed so genuine that Sarah caught herself starting to return the smile. She pressed her lips together tightly to suppress the impulse, then opened them just enough to let her words slip out. Can I talk to you? Of course. Come into the kitchen. It's the only room that's in a fit state for visitors yet, I'm afraid. I'll make us some coffee. Without waiting for an answer, he turned and strode down the hallway. Having lost her chance to confront him on the threshold, she followed him, fuming. When she reached the kitchen, he was already at the sink, filling a kettle from the tap. Her heart pounded and pain stabbed her temples. She'd burst if she had to hold her tongue any longer. (laughs) Why did you poison my roses? The question came out louder than she'd intended. He turned, still holding the kettle. What? You sprayed weed killer on my roses. I want to know why. Sarah heard the tremor in her voice and hated herself for it. She could feel the blood draining from her face. The kitchen spun around her as she clenched her fists and willed herself to stand her ground. The spinning stopped. She could do this. Stephen slowly set the kettle down. He wasn't smiling anymore. I don't know what you're talking about. I haven't poisoned anything. She took a deep breath and forced herself to speak slowly and clearly. The roses along my back fence are dying because they've been sprayed with weed killer. It could only have come through the fence from your yard. So I'd like an explanation. Why did you kill my roses? Her voice had risen on the last sentence and she was glad. To hell with being controlled. She wanted to shout and scream. From deep inside her, something whispered that all this anger was dangerous. She ignored it. Answer me! Why did you do it? I didn't. Flat and unamused. He was lying. Standing right in front of her and lying to her face. Bitter words rose. She opened her mouth to spit them out, but her throat closed up, trapping them inside her. She couldn't breathe. He was still talking. She could see his lips moving, but the thundering in her temples drowned out every other sound. She made an enormous effort and finally gasped in a lungful of blessed air. At the same time, words seeped into her brain. I think estate agent, the spraying, 
I'm sorry about your roses. No wonder you're upset. What was he saying? Estate agent? Oh, no. She licked dry lips and swallowed. When did you move in? His brows lowered in a puzzled frown. I just told you. Tuesday. Tuesday. Six days ago. Not long enough for that much damage to appear on the roses. Why hadn't she thought of that before? Because I've turned into some kind of maniac in the past 12 hours? All the blood that had drained from her face flooded back in a single rush. Her cheeks must be glowing like stoplights. If only the joints between the floorboards would open up, she'd slip down gladly. Her voice came out as a whisper. I'm so sorry, Stephen. He waved her apology away. Forget it. You have every right to be angry. We should complain to them, make them replace your plants. Hang on, we'd better go and see what damage they've done in my yard first. He turned and led the way to the back door. Sarah trailed after him, his kindness and understanding somehow making her feel even worse. Outside, she somehow pulled herself together enough to talk to him about the garden, but she was operating on autopilot. When he went into the house to make the coffee he'd started earlier, she sank down onto a small patch of ground, letting her mind go mercifully blank. A narrow shaft of sunlight slanted down between the trees to warm her. She brushed her hand over plants and soil, the contact with nature making her feel better, as it always did. Thousands of tiny emerald seedlings surrounded her, each one reaching for the light, striving for the space it needed. Her fingers began plucking out the weeds, giving the others a chance to grow. Dirt clung to her fingertips and worked its way under her nails. The world shrank to a small patch of earth. Her eyes followed the land as it dipped down and up, down and up. The hand found the edge of a clump of larger leaves, deep green, ferny, a straight, dark stem, and above it a neat pyramid of tight yellow buds topped with three open flowers. Curved red stamens poked out like tongues licking the air. Words drifted across Sarah's mind. Sazalpinia gelisii. Linda hadn't called it that. She'd called it her bird of paradise plant. She'd shown six-year-old Sarah how the stamens resembled the tongues of birds. Sarah shook her head. She didn't want to think about Linda now. She felt bad enough already. That last night's dream seemed to have breached the wall she had built and reinforced over so many years, and now the recollections flooded in, unstoppable. Sarah had been so full of grief and rage those first days after she'd been sent to live with Linda and Ben and their son, Mark. She had screamed and thrown tantrums and demanded to go home. Linda had absorbed it all, kindly and without fuss. And the little girl had begun to respond, like a wilted flower reviving under a gentle shower of rain. Sarah stretched forward and touched one of the open blooms. Moisture welled in her eyes. Linda had taught her the names of all her flowers and showed her how to look after each one. They spent hours outside together after school and on weekends. Linda loved all her plants, but the bird of paradise was her favourite. Sarah choked and snatched her hand away. The tears spilled over and trickled down her cheeks. This was ridiculous. She should be over it all by now. She had thought she was. It had been 20 years since she'd been banished from Linda's home and Linda's love. All because of Mark. She clenched her teeth and turned her head away, but it was no good. The memories had their claws in her now and wouldn't be denied. Eight-year-old Mark had been jealous of his new sister from the start, 
taking any opportunity to pinch her or pull her hair when his parents weren't looking. And then he began lying about her. He would break something and tell Linda that Sarah had done it. When Sarah denied it hotly, Linda didn't know who to believe. But one day, the last day, Mark went further. He deliberately hit himself on the head with a rock. Then he handed the rock to Sarah and started yelling. When Linda and Ben came running, they saw the blood in their son's hair and Sarah holding the red-stained rock. They wouldn't even listen to her side of the story. Linda cleaned Mark's injury and took him to his room to lie down. Ben sent Sarah to her room too, but when she heard Linda going back down the stairs, she crept after her. She crouched, shivering behind the banister on the bottom step, and listened to the adults talking in the next room. "'Honey, I think we might have rushed into all this without thinking it through,' said Ben. "'We've tried, but it's just not working, and we have Mark to think about.' Sarah's heart pounded. He meant her. She was what wasn't working. "'I hate the idea of giving up on her,' Linda said. "'But I didn't think it would be this hard.' She sounded like she was crying. I don't know what to do. I don't see how we can keep her, Ben said. Not after this. They were going to send her away. Back to the home that wasn't a home at all. It wasn't fair. It was Mark's fault. Horrible, lying Mark. She wished he was dead. She heard a sound from above her and turned to see him standing on the landing, looking down at her, smiling. He'd heard it all. He knew he'd won. She couldn't stand it. She screamed and bolted up the staircase, grabbed his arm and started kicking him in the shins. He shouted in surprise and pain, wrenched his arm free and twisted past her, trying to get to his parents. They were at the foot of the stairs now, looking up with shocked, pale faces. Sarah didn't care. He wasn't escaping from her that easily. She might be smaller than him, but fury made her strong, and he was already off balance. She pushed him in the back as hard as she could. He had fallen down the stairs all the way to the bottom. Sarah took a shaky breath and raised her wet eyes to the flowers again. Mark had survived, thank God, with a broken arm and some bruises, but Sarah had been banished back to the Martindale Children's Home. She had learned her lesson and never forgotten it. Don't get too attached. Don't feel too deeply. Control your emotions. But she hadn't been sent to another foster family. And she'd never found out who she really was, or where she had come from, or why she had been found at five years old, wandering along a highway in the middle of the night, crying for her lost parents. She didn't even remember their faces anymore. The smug, yellow flowers stared back at her, mocking her pain. It was too much. The anger, the headaches, the disturbing dream, the dizziness, the dying roses... All of it swirled together in a whirlpool of misery that sucked at her, dragged her down. She had no resistance left. She was a child once more, with her whole world torn apart, helpless and heartbroken, longing desperately for family and home. Fog roiled, and the world disappeared. Antipodes by Tia Simons Chapter 5 We watched the sunrise, glaring an orange over the horizon as the helicopter landed on a small pontoon, floating next to an island that looked like something out of a glossy travel brochure. Pristine white beaches edged with sheer rock-lying cliffs rising into beautiful green hills and valleys. 
two peaks covered with lush green forests towering over the valleys between. Several bays, large enough for small towns, eventually. At one end of the island, there was a narrow peninsula opening out into a flat green space at the end, in the shape of a lollipop. Almost another island, but not quite. A multiple level terraced area was cut into the earth, slightly below the village area, evidently for food production and to allow for rain runoff. As the helicopter slowed for landing, I could see neatly organised rows of long grey buildings, perfectly symmetrical, surrounding a central grassed area. Suspecting these were dormitories, they looked suspiciously like university accommodations surrounding playing fields. Slightly further off were several supplementary buildings and a cluster covered by connected walkways. Likely they were the common areas we'd been told about, a community hall, a dining room and a central kitchen. The rising sun glinted off a huge bank of solar panels mounted into the hillside overlooking the township as well as covering the surface of every rooftop. As we made our final approach to land I could see various sheds scattered around the island all equipped with water tanks and solar panels, far more polished than our cabin at the block. Clearly they'd spared no expense for this experiment. It looked idyllic for a holiday. The 50 of us in my cohort were classified as number six. Six groups, 300 strangers to inhabit a roughly 300 kilometre square island. Hoisting the single backpack that contained my few personal belongings, we followed our guide, Derek, ashore. All guides would be evacuated by the end of the second day after they had oriented us. After that, the permanent geodesic dome would be fixed in place and that was it. Hello, brave new world. Making my way from the pontoon along the neatly paved path behind a small, dark-haired woman, I pondered what everybody else had brought in their bags. We were well kitted out, we knew. Fully furnished houses, quality clothing, medical supplies and equipment, crops, seeds, tools and equipment. They really had considered everything, even tea and coffee plants. Such an odd mixture of old-school farming combined with the best of modern technology. We'd each been allocated one primary job function, and it was in this area that we'd been provided with our intensive pre-departure training. Some people, such as those earmarked to be teachers, had immediate role before the second one was required. Mine, due to the study in agricultural science, was producing an enormous range of food for the community in both vegetable gardens, orchards and greenhouses. Initially, we were trialling what would grow well here, as we had an abundant supply of food to get us started. After that, we would need to have finessed what suited the environment. With the dome in place, scientists weren't sure what impact it would have on the local climate and what could be grown successfully. As we walked, Derek told us that due to the dome's waterproof construction, there would be no natural rainfall. That was probably just as well, considering the reason for being here, I thought. There were clean water reservoirs on the island for drinking and showering, then that water was recycled and used for agricultural purposes and clothes washing. Crops would require very little additional watering. Like a terrarium, the water we used to water the plants would evaporate as the sun penetrated the dome. It would condense and then fall each day as rain. The water in the reservoirs would be filtered using a variety of methods before use, so we were continually protected. The scientists who had selected this island had estimated there would be enough water for hundreds of years if we were careful about its use and didn't let the population outgrow our capacity to grow food. So it is Malthusian theory, I considered, remembering Sorka and us conversation in the kitchen that day. I couldn't help but visualise the terrarium we'd built out of old plastic bottles at school. 
One of the briefings we all attended in those first two days was about the structural integrity of the dome. The dome permitted air to pass through, but not water. Never water. Like most, I was fascinated by the dome initially and felt the need to touch it, run my fingers along the slightly thicker angular seams where the two triangles joined around a lightweight, lightweight fiberglass frame. Expecting it to be hard, I was surprised when I found it pliable. A sample was handed around in the briefing session, allowing us all to become familiar with the structure that would protect us. A clear, thick fabric composed of rows of triangles, then inverted triangles, that was designed to completely enclose us. The fabric was drawn tightly in places, but there was clearly room for the dome itself to move slightly in the breeze, without it catching it like a tent and blowing it off in a decent storm. So how does air pass through but not water, someone asked. That's quite new technology, isn't it? Not at all, said Derek. You've all heard of Gore-Tex fabric, haven't you? Most people nodded in agreement. The manufacturers of Gore-Tex have been working on this for a very long time. It's the next generation, I suppose you could say. Like Gore-Tex, it's breathable. We don't want you to suffocate. But this is completely waterproof. It's stronger too, much stronger. It'll withstand cyclones, hurricanes, even fire. After all, the original Gore-Tex fabric was invented in 1969. What do you think they've been working on all this time? As it's a fabric, can it be cut? I asked, terrified that some suicidal nut job might sacrifice us all. In my initial briefing, I'd envisaged the dome as a hard, impermeable plastic. Try. I was handed the sample fabric triangle, taut against its frame. Pulling my pocket knife from my jacket pocket, I tried cautiously to make a hole. Surprised that it was exceedingly strong, I tried again, this time using a great deal of force. The sharp knife tip bounced off the fabric like it was impacting sheet metal. I was relieved, but also intrigued. Others wanted to try, stabbing madly and slashing at it with various implements. Again, nothing, to my immense relief. So how was it made? I asked. That part is secret, but I can assure you that you're safe. We're positive that there's nothing here that can cut the fabric. Nodding, I asked, will it disintegrate? You know, degrade over time with sun or oxygen exposure. Laboratory tests have indicated that it will last about 500 years, much longer than any of you. Nervous laughter rippled through the group. We're also working under the assumption that the pandemic will be controlled well before that time. What are the frames made from? A voice asked. Reinforced fiberglass, basically light, thin, but extremely strong frames, protected by the fabric. That too should not degrade to any extent where impacts the integrity of the dome. You said it was fireproof. Will smoke, smoke escape? That was going to be my next point. Risks. No, smoke cannot escape, and that is something I need to press upon you all. Smoke is the biggest single risk factor here. There are to be no fires, and every precaution must be taken to avoid bushfire. There's no risk of lightning impacting the dome, as it's not a conduit, so man-made causes are all you need to worry about. Remember that steam is different from smoke. Steam is pure water vapour. What will happen naturally when the water evaporates from the ground with the heat of the sun? So you don't need to worry about boiling pots and kettles. But smoke is a different matter. Smoke contains soot, ash and other particles. That's what will build up on the dome fabric and stop it from allowing air to pass through. A moment of silence as we all absorb this news. Smoke. Bad. Is there a way out? Nope. Once you're in, you're in. 
We all nodded in confirmation. This had been pressed on us several times a day for the 14 days we'd been in quarantine and training. The following morning, 20th of February, our lives changed forever. The guides and mentors who had oriented us waved goodbye as they departed on the final helicopter off the island. The entire community lined the cliff edge to watch the custom-made dome, which wasn't uniform in shape, I noted, carefully manoeuvred into place by a team of sky cranes, those fascinatingly big and ridiculously loud helicopters. Birds flew squawking from the island, never to return. Others were trapped, and we watched helplessly as they repeatedly slammed themselves into the fabric. It was equal parts thrilling and terrifying, fascinating to think that such a comparatively thin piece of fabric could keep us safe from something so catastrophic. Equally, it felt so permanent, yet not claustrophobic, Shut off from the rest of the world, but the clear nature of the fabric and the fresh air didn't make me feel trapped. We watched as engineers drilled the irregular frame several metres into the earth from the outside, deep enough to ensure we couldn't accidentally dig under it. Sustainability was the critical initiative here. If we didn't grow it, we'd starve. If we couldn't make it or mend it, then we didn't have it. An overwhelming sense of pressure about the importance of my role engulfed me. What would happen if I let my team down? Would people starve or even die because of me? We were now in an environment where we were completely reliant on each other for survival. We were a team and we all had to pull our weight to ensure our community survived. There was to be no waste, no plastic, nothing that could be discarded. There simply wasn't room on the island for waste. Clothes would need to be mended and reused, although we had cotton plants and sheep. Everything was made from natural fibres and materials. Coming from a world where we were so ready to throw away old clothes, cars, fridges, was a strange sensation. Breathing While Drowning One Woman's Quest for Wholeness by Veronica Strachan In Breathing While Drowning, I chart my 20-year journey back to life after the death of my young daughter, Jacqueline Bree. I also share my raw journals, tools, inspirations and powerful lessons to help and inspire you to do the same in your own life, in your own way and at your own pace. Part 1. Defining Moments When a child dies, the world sheds a tear. When that child is your own, an ocean of grief swallows you whole. You can't imagine how you can still be breathing when your child is not. When that child has had a fragile hold on life from the moment of her birth and you've used every breath in your body to give her a life full of joy, you want to stop breathing when she does. In the moment, you scream and wail and die inside. Your heart fills with pain You plead for just one more minute, to turn the clock back, to make a different choice, to trade places, anything but the reality of the small, still body of your child in your arms. But it's true. Your child is gone and you're still breathing. You begin to drown in that dark, cold ocean. Your world takes on a sense of unreality and you find yourself just going through the motions. It's the ultimate deception, pretending to live, but really drowning. 
With years of practice, you get really good at it. It's like life is happening behind a wall, a perspex layer that keeps you numb, but lets you go on doing all the lifelike things to keep the world from seeing how hurt and broken you are. You're strong, you're courageous, haven't you done well? Inside, you're pathetic, powerless, afraid to open up, guilty about your failure and ashamed of your grief. So how is it that one day you realise that you no longer have to tell yourself to breathe in and breathe out, to get out of bed, to take a shower, to eat breakfast or to go on living? That in fact, you're loving life, jumping out of bed, impatient to get the day started. You're going confidently in the direction of your dreams that have been dusted off and put at the top of the to-do list. Although the grief is still there, the ocean is only a small puddle that you unexpectedly step into from time to time. You still never know how deep that puddle is and sometimes you find yourself in over your head, drowning again, gasping to breathe. But mostly the puddle just brings soft tears and smiles, love and compassion and gratitude for the beautiful gift of her short life. Breathing While Drowning is me taking you on my own heroine's journey, the hardest of all. It is my journey replete with all my perfect imperfections. My hope is that in my story, my exploration of feeling, healing and reconnection you will find some inspiration for your own journey, a way to think differently about yourself and your life. I hope that in thinking differently, you will find something practical that helps you remember the feeling, helps with your healing and reconnection, and lets you reach for those dreams so that you can live a conscious life that expresses the very best of who you are. It's taken me almost 20 years, but I've rediscovered my reasons for living. They were right beside me all the time. Loving me, broken and flawed as I am, I'm living for myself and for those who are still here and who love me, Strack, Cassie, Angus and Fraser. I'm living for good friends and family and for people I've yet to meet. I'm living for people I can inspire, instruct and involve in life, love and laughter. The first part of my journey starts out unremarkably, but then it gets dark before it spills back into the light. I've avoided putting these experiences into words for almost 20 years, so please be patient as I stumble around in the shadows for a while and get my bearings. As Maureen Murdoch says, there are no maps, no signposts, and the journey follows no straight lines. But I have the destination in mind and I'll get you there eventually. I'm in the arena. There may be tears and tragedy, but there will be laughter and happy endings as well. A note on journaling. I'm a writer and an introvert, so I've always found solace in putting pen to paper. The blank page has frequently been my best friend and the only way I could think and plan or share my thoughts, dreams, pain and joy. I often found a few minutes to scribble a note about something in the wee hours of the morning, at the end of a long night shift of nursing. Journal writing is cathartic and forgiving. No one needs to see these words, but putting them on paper does something for the thought. It gives it a voice, a presence that just thinking about stuff lacks. My mum was a great storyteller 
and could tell you a tale of my great-grandmother jumping off the jetty onto the ferry at Queenscliff with the three little pigs just in time to escape the big bad wolf who fell into the water. She could tell you the special moments for all of her eight children, their milestones and joys. She told them with humour and drama, linking people and places and feelings. I loved her stories and I still miss her dearly. When my babies were born, I started a journal for each of them. That way, I could let them read the special moments once they were grown up. It was a way to record more than I could remember off the top of my head or scribble hastily onto the calendar. Of course, the firstborn, Cassandra Kate, has the most written about her. And then comes Jacqueline Bree, and then Angus Peter, and then my youngest, Fraser Douglas. As time went on, I got increasingly busy with living life rather than recording it. For a while, I lost Jackie's two volumes because I'd put them away when we moved a few years back. Strack found them just before Christmas this year, 2014. He found them just in time for me to turn a new page, to begin again, to read all the memories, good and bad, funny and sad, lots of small moments, random thoughts, grand ideas and momentous occasions. How very glad I am that I wrote those journals. Maria Popova, who blogs as Brain Pickings, said the following about journaling. Journaling, writing the words, feeling the pain, opening the vein. What I can't say out loud, I can write on the page. I can explore without snap judgment from others. In the same blog, she tells us that Anais Nin wrote, Journaling is a practice that teaches us better than any other the elusive art of solitude. To be present in our own selves, bear witness to our experience and fully inhabit our inner lives. She also includes this quote from Virginia Woolf, A diary builds a bridge between our present selves and our future ones, which are notoriously cacophonous in their convictions. I love those last five words. Notoriously cacophonous in their convictions. Words have always held a special power in my life. When I was young, they would take me to another place. They had the power to hurt, but they also had the power to heal. For many years, words were the only things I had to be honest with. Journaling was what kept me sane, kept me from drowning. So many pages are smeared with tears and wretched with heartache. So many pages capture tiny, joyous moments that bring smiles and hoots of laughter. Of books and reading, voraciously, searching for answers, Joe Bradshaw tells us the following about Claire Messard. We are as much the sum of our lived literary experiences as of our literally lived experiences. Yes, yes and yes to that. Conversations with purpose, that's what I'm about. Journaling is a conversation with a purpose, a conversation with myself. The act offers a chance for the victim to wail, the fighter to plan, the creator to muse, the observer to reflect. In the pages of my journals to Jackie, I rediscovered a young woman with hopes and dreams, anger and passion, shame and innocence, grief and resilience. I see an unbearably optimistic woman who is destined to lead, to learn and to love again. So this is my legacy. To share the lessons that help me keep breathing while drowning. Where is my writing voice to share with the world? For so many years, I've written in the third person for business, written impersonally from the outside. 
Now I feel like I'm opening a can of worms, sharing my vulnerability, my optimism and my hope. My fingers keep bleeding on the sharp edges. What will I find if I dive in? Red Smith said, There's nothing to writing. All you do is sit down at a typewriter and open a vein. By the way, I'm also a life and leadership coach and I can't help adding in a few lessons and tips along the way. Enjoy. Well, I can't get any younger. So here goes. Let's meet again. Where magic happens. Australian Book Lovers acknowledges First Nations peoples and recognises their continuous connection to country, community and culture. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and honour the sharing of traditional stories passed down through generations. We're committed to a safe and inclusive welcome for authors and readers of all cultures and backgrounds including people of LGBTQIA plus communities and their families.